Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is legendary broadcaster turned podcaster, Adam Curry. Adam has had an extremely rich, unique, and interesting career in media. What began as pirate radio in Europe during his teens led to becoming a popular MTV VJ, several entrepreneurial ventures in the early days of the internet, and being one of the first to use and popularize the new medium of podcasting. Since that time, Adam has been a strong advocate for the value-for-value model of content publishing, whereby fans and listeners contribute what they believe the content is worth, rather than relying on potentially censorious advertisers. Most recently, these efforts have been made far more frictionless than ever before with the advent of Bitcoin's Lightning Network, and Adam has been instrumental in popularizing the possibilities for immediate and effectively free streaming payments. As a result, Adam has once again become one of the primary forces in pushing a new publishing and communications model forward, which prioritizes freedom of expression and fosters a more direct and honest relationship between creator and audience. Enjoy. Adam, how you doing? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm good. We actually spoke uh, just a couple of days ago on on BTC Sessions. Why are we bullish? Friday special, which was uh, was fun. Our first interaction. That was it. Was um, different for me because typically I'm in the conversation and it's about stuff that I really know a lot about. And I'd say the first 45 minutes, I knew I knew what you were talking about, but I, there's nothing I can contribute. I'm like, all right, I'll just sit here and I'll just listen. I'm going to learn something <laughs> on this. So I felt a little like fish out of water. Like I'm, I'm really happy to be on here, but. You know, it's like I can I can participate in a joke about Peter Schiff, but you know, the, there's a lot of OG <laughs> stories I don't know that much about. Well, what's it been like? I mean, that's a good maybe place to start. What's it been like for you to because you've been in media your whole career, and we'll touch on some of that today, hopefully. But what's it been like to enter into the the Bitcoin hive mind because it's quite the thing, you know? Well, it started long ago. It started in 2009 or 2010, and I was doing the podcast with Dvorak, No Agenda, still doing it, now in our 15th year. And uh, people were saying, hey, man, this Bitcoin thing, this Bitcoin thing, you got to check out this Bitcoin thing. And I'm like, eh, whatever. And um, I, I can't blame my partner for this, but I know he blames himself. He said, hey, man, this Bitcoin, that's like beanie babies for the internet. And we, and we, it was funny. It was a good gag. And so we were laughing about it for a good three, four years. People sent me Bitcoins. You know, I had, I had Bitcoin core running on a Mac somewhere, you know, so I, I, I kind of understood a little bit and uh, it just kind of dropped off my radar. I was busy doing lots of things, building the show. I still had a company at the time. And uh, now we fast forward to uh, now we're like 2004. 14, 15, something like that. And um, I'd actually started day trading. Uh, a buddy of mine had convinced me to, to, do, to start day trading, which t- technical day trading and scalping, which turns out I'm really good at, but I have no balls. I mean, I, I can do it with a thousand bucks, but then it's like, oh, do it with a, a hundred thousand and you'll make much more. And I, I can't do it. So I was like, oh, this is, I don't <laughs> like this. So I, in the process of learning this day trading, I was like, well, I need some money to, uh, you know, to, to, to trade with. And so let me see about this Bitcoins. And I had 65 Bitcoin on this Bitcoin core wallet on an old Mac laptop. And I'm like, oh, this will be handy. And it's like, look at this thing. It's $900. Oh, let's sell it. It'll never make anything out of this. And so I, uh, I sold it. Then I day traded it. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I probably came out about even. And 
you know, it was not long after that that we saw the that first massive spike around the end of the year. I forget exactly which year was it? Twenty seventeen, maybe sixteen or seventeen. Went up past ten thousand. Seven, yeah, seventeen is when we hit twenty uh, k. Yeah, end of, end of seventeen. Yeah, twenty yeah, exactly. And so that's when I started to pay attention. I'm like, I made a mistake here. I've got to understand what's going on. And it was really. Well, it was first. It was honestly Max Kaiser, Max and Stacy. Um, mm. Just I, I've always been a fan of Max. We've been friends, good acquaintances for a long time. I, you know, I, he's on my wavelength of of, of nut jobbery, and uh, <laughs> and just listening to him, I knew a bit of his story from back from the dot com days because I had you know public company and been involved in a lot of the early internet, early and intermediate internet building. Um. And so I just started to pay attention and started listening, uh, understanding. I mean, my my knowledge at the time of central banking and, you know, was kind of limited to, I'd read Ron Paul's and the Fed. And so, oh, you know, I could kind of parrot the, the Federal Reserve as, as governmental as Federal Express, but I really wasn't right. quite there yet. And um, I have a couple of uh, friends, uh, ex-banker friends and uh, although they vehemently still disagreed with Bitcoin at the time, that's changed a bit. Um, you know, at least I started to understand a bit more of what was going on. And uh, it was, so I, you know, I, I kind of like, I, I got to find out where, how to, how to jump into this. And then that opportunity came, that opportunity came during the lockdown and, mm. you know, Bitcoin, I think because I, uh, my wife and I said, look, you know, I made a mistake, but now look at what's going on. Now it's thirty six hundred or thirty seven hundred. Let's 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 get some and let's buy on the way up because it's it's, it's clear to me that this is going to return, and we did. And uh, but so that has been really really uh, uh, very fantastic because I orange pilled my wife at the same. I basically, you know, I, um, we got married six years ago, um, and we were the perfect union of people. Uh, what I consider to be the great male-female model, we really fit like yin and yang together. Um, above all, to be quite honest, I'm a guy that's always lived on great cash flow. I've never really saved anything, <laughs> and she is the opposite. So she came with uh, she came with a dowry, her own uh, her own saved dowry. I said, "Well, look, here's what we can do: let's buy a house and let's get some Bitcoin, and I'll and I'll make the cash flow go." And it's and it's just been phenomenal. Uh, without her, I I probably would not have jumped in um, the way the way that we did. And I, now I know much better that you don't really have to have a lot of money. You can do it. You know your daily cost averaging. You can do you know a couple bucks a week. I mean, it's, it doesn't really matter how much or how little you do. You in the long run, you're going to see the positive results. Yeah. So um, so that was happening, and at the same time. There's just so many things that were going on. Um, in, in fact, in March of 2020, uh, I'd been on the Joe Rogan show. And mm. um, it was, this is right before the, the two weeks to flatten the curve, I guess. And, uh, so I was, and, and it was really interesting because I was talking to Joe a little bit. And I'm like, man, this cancel stuff is, this is a problem. And I could, he was losing advertisers. You know, people were trying to cancel his advertisers and this was before his Spotify deal. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the, uh, an interesting, maybe very good move for him, uh, certainly financially. But then it was, uh, there was this one night where 
all the Silicon Valley companies decided, including Apple, to remove Alex Jones from everything. And along with that went a couple other so-called QAnon podcasts, you know, the X-22 report. I mean, really innocuous stuff. And I've been listening to Alex Jones for decades. And, you know, I can understand, you know, like his message. But, you know, for a company like Apple, who I had, in essence, handed podcasting to them on a platter, including the beginnings of the directory, that was uh, disappointing. And they'd been such great stewards of podcasting for, you know, 15, 16, 15 years or so. Um, and so I, I was thinking about this, like, well, this, we can't have Apple being the boss of us and Spotify is trying to buy everything. And so, you know, <clears throat> let's just do it. Actually, I was listening to, uh, um, the, uh, above tech podcast, Marco, who uh, is the develops and runs overcast. And he was saying, oh, you know, what, what should, what someone should do is they should, you know, set up an independent index. It was along those lines. It wasn't exact. I'm paraphrasing. And I thought, yeah. well, hell yeah. You know, I got time. Let's do this. And the the initial idea was just to have an, uh, an uninterruptible index that would be free for all, in particular, for developers to use. Because when Apple took podcasts off of their centralized index, every app developer that had a podcast app lost the Alex Jones show because um, just for historical reasons over a decade of letting Apple kind of be the central service, people were using their index through a unsupported yet uh, open API, uh, which Apple then subsequently recently changed dramatically. And so, you know, people were uh, like, oh crap, my app doesn't work anymore, or I can't show my listeners or whatever this this particular podcast because someone else determined it. So I called up Dave Jones, who we've been working together for 10, 11 years. We've done lots of cool projects, which wind up only great for us. But we had a lot of RSS feed aggregation experience. Mm. Uh, just I probably Dave probably has more experience than anyone in the business. Um, and we're an, another one of those great yin and yangs. And typically when I have an idea, Dave's like, sure, let's build it. And, and, you know, within a day we got something, we bang it around and, but this one was like, oh, this is kind of cool. We can do this. Um, and this is around the time that a guy named Dennis Parker, uh, who I only know from Twitter, I think he's based in the Netherlands. He said, mm -hmm. oh, dude, you got to check out the lightning network. This is really interesting. And he was my, my lightning Sherpa. And, uh, so I ordered a, um, a raspy blitz. Uh, you could uh, you know you could either assemble it yourself and download the package, but I took the easy route and I said, ah, just send me one with the chain already synced to it, or at least most of it. I know not very security conscious, but um, and I just started. To, I'm a tinkerer, so I, I can get through you know setting up stuff like that. And it started to dawn on me what this was and what was going on, and I saw this key send feature. I'm like, oh, this is interesting because, you know, the first time you get into Lightning, especially if you're used to Venmo and other types of payment apps, it's weird that you have to show someone an invoice and it's kind of a different way of thinking, you know, oh, here's my invoice, yeah. pay me instead of pay me directly. And I saw this pay me directly. And then as I dug into the protocol, I'm like, oh, we can script this. So this fit into something that I've been developing 
with Dvorak for 15 years, which is the value for value model. And we can talk about that to any, any length you want. But in essence, we have proven that if you ask people to send you money and make that amount equal to the value they perceived from listening to your podcast, people will do it. Uh, and enough people will do it to support what you're doing. And so that for me was like, well, holy crap, now we could do this with lightning in real time. So instead of, say, instead of saying, hey, I hope you like this three-hour show, if it was worth anything to you, you know, is it like, uh, you know, you, maybe you go to a movie theater, take a date, have some popcorn, uh, it's 50 bucks, you know, and that's an hour and a half. Was this worth 50? Was it worth 100? I don't know. You tell me. How much is it worth to you? And um, and now you can do that in real time where you're receiving the MP3 ones and zeros and you're sending back ones and zeros in the form of Satoshis in real time. You stop listening, you stop returning value. It's super simple. And it caught mm. on. Um, you know, we're fast forwarding, but in a year, it's all, it's already, we have thousands of podcasts already implementing the value for value model. Yeah. It's so cool. And once you first start tinkering with your lightning node and you, you know, you know, you're opening channels and you're seeing streaming payments, you're sending streaming payments, you're using, you know, an app to listen to pods like that. I mean, it's such an empowering feeling. Like it's really cool to have that kind of connection with your money and particularly a money that you revere so highly and know that there's, there's no real intermediary. Like you're in, you're in control here. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And as you say, it's very early days. I, just back to the original question for a second. You know, it seems to me that you've always been somewhat of a uh, like anti-establishment sort of thinker and, and you know, that sort of opinion. What's it like to see this? Because even, you, you know, you mentioned being in Bitcoin in 2010 or so, the, the, the culture was far less... Uh, obvious then i guess i mean if you were in the right niches and pockets there was certainly a lot of the the beginnings and seedlings of it all but now at this stage i mean if you you know bitcoin twitter is a is a hot thing on twitter right and you see all these people engaging there and sharing ideas refining ideas you know all that kind of stuff what's it like for you to see this culture emerge that pretty much is has a lot of the very same principles seemingly that you do, you know, very questioning of authority, very intent on preserving privacy and freedom of speech, this kind of stuff. What's it, what's it been like for you to begin engaging with that network of people, let's say? A bit of history. Um, I am from a family that is all military or intelligence or government personnel. I was born in mm -hmm. Arlington Hospital, uh, grew up in the D.C. area. My parents, uh, when I was two, I think, we moved to Uganda for a number of years. Interesting time to be there. Uh, you know, uh, then back, you know, grew up in the Netherlands in the 70s. Um, so perhaps, and I was, I knew I was not like the, I'm not an Ivy Leaguer. Uh, <laughs> I went to, to, to college for three months and, you know, dropped out like, now this is not for me. Uh, but I was the black sheep of the family. Always knew that I was definitely in a in, in on a different wavelength. And very early on, when I was 13, 12, 13, uh, is when I started tinkering. And it started. I still have it actually. The uh, Radio Shack one hundred uh, one hundred and one one hundred experiments in one. I don't know if you're familiar with this product. No. Uh, but it's basically a breadboard 
and it has all electronic components on it, and it came with uh, sets of wires, color-coded, red, blue, yellow, I think maybe white, and those were different lengths. And it had a book, and it had all these projects. And so I say, okay, now you can build, um, you can build, it had a little photo sensor, so you can build a, a light that will, will turn on when someone walks past the, the box. And uh, you can, and it has a little schematic, and you connect this the the input of this transistor to this resistor, and, and you do it with this wire, and so you kind of are building a schematic. And one of the things that was in there, one of the last projects, was an FM transmitter. I'm like, oh, this is cool. So I put the transmitter together, and it worked. And then I figured out pretty quick if I uh, put longer wire on it, I could have an antenna outside, and then I could be broadcasting to the neighborhood. And these are the days when we had transistor radios. It was kind of a thing. That's what you listened on. We, you had a, a boombox, maybe, a radio and, and two cassette recorders in there. Um, and I, and I, growing up in the Netherlands, a very strict media environment. There's no commercial television or radio. It was all um, uh, really? government, government run. Oh, yeah. They had a pop station. Because at Hilversum, which is the town where this where the broadcasters, it was like Hollywood for the, for the Netherlands, and you had the channels. You had Hilversum one, two, and three, and one was news. Two was um, what was two? Why was that? Why did they not have commercial radio? As, it was a socialist country. It still is. Uh, there was no there was no uh, media as as we knew it in the United States. In fact. They only had two TV stations, which would come on at 7 p.m. and go off at uh, at 11. And the news would be on at 7 p.m., the bo- same guy on the, both channels at the same time. And oh, it was, it's a very, very convoluted system. What that wow. bred, of course, was the pirate radio stations. This was Radio Caroline, Radio Mi Amigo, um, North Sea, Veronica. They were on these ships in, 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 uh, in non-territorial waters or international waters, and they were beaming into either uh, the Benelux or to the UK or both. And you know, at a certain point, they were even bombing each other's ships out of competition. So I was following this as a young kid. But also, you know, you were hearing Humpa Polka music on the radio in the Netherlands, and they were playing um, Deep Purple. They were playing. It's like, wow, what am I doing here? This is, this is great. And we'd be listening. That was medium wave. You know, it wasn't even FM. So I got this broadcast bug. Very early on by tinkering, I really liked the, the whole process of setting up a mixer, building a mixer for my two turntables and a microphone. And then I spent years practicing on my voice because I sounded like a girl. You know, I didn't have the right voice and I could get Wolfman Jack from Radio Luxembourg in the middle of the night. And Wolfman Jack! You know, it's like, oh, I want to be more like that guy. And then there was Casey Kasem, America Top 40. So I had all these different influences uh, but oh, actually, non, none of them commercial, which was kind of interesting, although the pirate stations did have commercials, but there was you know, more integrated into the programming. And um, so, uh, you know, then I was working at hospital radio stations. Then the, in the Netherlands, there was a, a big, this is around the turning point just before commercial radio. We had really big pirate stations, FM, decibel radio was number one in Amsterdam. This was, again, whole, polka music playing on the on the on the traditional station and we'd go get these surplus uh, army transmitters uh, actually air force which would be about uh, half a kilowatt and we you know transfer them in you know get the put them onto fm and then modulate them we have big antennas on the roof because the, the government had no idea how to handle us so they there was so many but we were big and 
we got records from Atalos Imports who were getting it directly from Chicago. So we were playing Chicago Warehouse. Shit, man, we had Madonna in the studio doing Hash Under a Glass with us in 1981. <laughs> and they were still playing accordion polka music. And so, and this is because her record actually came back two years later, re-released and became the big hit. And then from there, actually a lot of guys like myself, we moved from the pirate stations and we kind of took over the government airwaves, um, uh, you know, bit by bit, like a Friday evening, three hour show. That's all you get. But it was, it was so mind boggling. So I, I learned very quickly this, this loop. And the loop started with, um, well, back in the pirate days, we had something called the phone in. And uh, once every hour for three minutes, we just open the phone lines and it would ring. We just pick up and say, hey, you're on the air. And someone could say whatever they want. We hang up and go, go on. So that's your feedback loop. Um, postcards. Uh, I mean, we were motivating people to send stuff like, hey, you know, come up with something cool for our promotion. Uh, we're doing a kabuki weekend or whatever. And before you know it, the, the mail service was calling saying, you guys got to cut it out because people are sending ninja stars and swords <laughs> and shit and you can't do that. It's dangerous for the mail carriers. And, you know, then I, um, in 87, I moved to, uh, uh, to New York to work for MTV. Hold um, on. Before, before we get to the, the <laughs> 80s era, I want to ask you this. You know, it's interesting to look back on, on one's life and try to like connect the dots to why you ended up the person you end up, right? And it's interesting, your case, because it seems like, you know, as you kind of said, you were the black sheep of the family. Like most of your family was kind of straight laced, all in the same Catholics industry, in action, right? Yeah. And, and so what, what do you think made you develop in a different way? What were the influences that caused you to enjoy tinkering, want to express yourself in these unconventional, even like taboo, risky ways at the time? Like, can you tra trace that back to anything in particular? Being like any teenager, I want to be the opposite of my parents. So that definitely helped. I love them so much, and both of them are gone, but I love them so much for encouraging me uh, to do all this illegal shit, which honestly could have uh, not been good for them. <laughs> Because so you, know, so you weren't really running afoul of them. They were kind of like, you know, if you if you dig it, go for it. Is they were happy they were I wasn't doing drugs that they knew of. You know, of course. Right. I mean, you're at the pirate radio station. You're smoking a lot of weed. <laughs> but they were happy. Well, they were kind of post hippie. So that. But they were happy that I was. You know, it took me a little while to get my crap together. I was not interested in school. I was big into you know CB radios, anything that had an antenna. I was into. It was just, and, and I remember it was my quasi productive. Mom, well, there's, guess. A, there's two moments, and I've actually, and so I've had practice at connecting all these pieces of my life because I've tried to write a book, um, and, I, and actually I realized that I haven't, I need to finish a chapter, which is the one I'm in now, before I can write anything. And but I, so I've had this opportunity to look back, and there was one picture of me which I don't have anymore, but it was of me sitting in a closet with a naked light bulb above it. I can re remember the picture uh, when I was maybe five. And uh, there was a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder in there um, with, uh, um, I think, a, some kind of microphone and some Bakelite headphones. And I was just pretending to be talking into it or whatever. And my, my parents took a picture of that. And I remember my mom saying, ah, oh, your Opa Al would be so proud of you. And he was in the Signal Corps in uh, World War II uh, and actually landed at Normandy Beach. Uh, so I found that out much, much later, of course. And so he was wow. in Signal Corps, so he was doing all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and what other? Were you, were were you like, were you like, what was exciting about it? You know, like, were you trying to, was it just that it was exciting and that you kind of just naturally went that way and you didn't ask too many questions or were you like seeking something? Like, were you seeking? uh, No, I can tell you exactly. I I realized the moment. So this is going on while I'm in junior high you know, I'm 15, 16 and I'm on, and, and I'm a gawky guy with Tourette's tics. Uh, I got bad hair, the wrong shoes, everything's wrong. I'm, and I'm American, which at the time in the Netherlands was not great. You know, the I went to the international school, uh, but then the, you know, the Dutch kids would pick on me. <laughs> Boo-hoo. These days you'd say, I was a victim. And <laughs> uh, of course, it, I was not a victim, and, but I was very quiet. Um, and then somehow someone at school realized that uh, John Holden which was my, my DJ name was me. And overnight I went from loser guy who gets blamed for shit to, Hey man, that's pretty cool. I'm like, wow. So I can do this. No one has to look at me cause I'm not much of a looker. I have never felt that. And I can, uh, you know, just do my own thing and uh, people enjoy it. And, and it's the feedback. I think the, the reinforcement uh, the feedback loop has become everything. And that's what we've learned really with, with the internet and social media, which we've taken to, we've taken quite far with how people interact and get feedback on their point of view or their choice of music or what, whatever it is. Um, and I know how powerful this is in the media, in a broadcast medium, because I know what it's like to do a location uh, event with a radio station. I know what it's like to do a location event with MTV. Um, people want to be or want to be a part of something bigger. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to a physical place, but it means they can be a part of something, um, a tribe, you know? And so then you've got your, I don't know. So this, it's just, I've just grown up in my career because I started so early with um, what I used to call fans and now what I call producers. These are the people who actually now with our email and DMs and all the different ways we can communicate, these people are the ones giving me information and cool stuff because everybody's an expert in something. You just have to have a number, a number, enough of these somethings, and then you can aggregate it and, uh, and, and spit it back. And then people get a real, real chuckle out of participating in the process. And that's just kind of been my life. I just, I've always just, um, been in that loop of broadcasting. Uh, honestly, the only thing I'm good at is picking hits. It's like, I can pick a hit song, I can pick a hit news story, and I think sometimes I can pick a hit technology, and then lightning came across my path. I'm like, okay, this is the one. This feels good. Mm -hmm. What was a a highlight of the pirate radio days before we move on to the uh, black leather pants and 80s hair era? (laughs) Just one highlight? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, the Madonna story is kind of cool. I mean, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's plenty plenty of stories that... I would say what was always just kind of interesting is how the camaraderie of it all, Mm. Um, because there was little to no money. You know, we had uh, one patron saint, Ernst Bailkurkfluer. This was a guy who had two retail stores in uh, uh, kitchen floors, tiles and cork. (laughs) And he just had his, his, he was the advertiser. He sponsored everything. 
Uh, so we didn't have that much money, but it was, we were just loving doing radio. And then the studio was kind of, it, you know, we had a ground floor old storefront on one of the canals and we were always hanging inside, outside. There were people stopping by. There was just, it was such an incredible moment in time. Um, and, you know, so then eventually we were too powerful and uh, the, F- the Dutch FCC would come to confiscate everything. And this was a, almost like a process we knew. They'd be like, hey, hey, man, how you doing? Yeah, we'll put the coffee on, right? You guys can go get all our gear. And they'd unload everything. And then 20 minutes later, here came our truck with all the gear, new gear coming back in. We'd be up on the air in like an hour or so. Um, so just that whole, that whole time was, um, was super magical. Um, it, 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 I mean, there's, there's a million stories, but I mean, we're like the only guys who got that Cheech and Chong up and smoke album. Are you familiar with it? The double album. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we actually use that big rolling paper inside to roll up the biggest joint in the universe and smoke it while we were all on the air. So that kind of stuff, you know, that was, that was super fun. You know, can't get those days back. It's too expensive. You can't fill up a paper like that with weed anymore. Yeah. And, and the rules seem more overbearing these days in, in a way i guess and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of break into so, how so, free, so bottom line that too i i've always been a broadcaster and maybe i'm just born with it um one other big influence my grandmother gave me a sony am transistor radio when i was about six and uh, it was just a small cube maybe about uh, five by five inches it had a leatherette case and a very very good sound um, and I remember every single night I would go to sleep with the radio under my pillow, listening to the basketball game. And, and I know shit all about sports. I'm not a sports guy, but I loved this environment. I could hear, I could hear the squeaking on the court, you know, what I call theater of the mind. I could, I was there. I was like, oh my God, I can hear these guys. And I can, oh, I, and I wonder, are they in a booth? Do they mix in the, the, the court sounds? Is that a, not? so I was already wondering these things at six or seven. So that, that world, and maybe because I was living in my head a bit as a kid, that just became the theater of the mind. It's like, I love sound. I love to create an environment where people are drawn in and are listening uh, to whatever it is. You know, and, and I've tried radio plays and done all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, it's, you know, it's a combination of things to keep a listener engaged and interested in what you have to say. And, and if someone would say, hey, man, you know, I was driving home and I parked in the driveway and I had to sit there and wait until you finished your story. Yeah, that that was one of the most exciting things you could say. Yeah. You know, it's just from having done some podcasting in recent years, you know, it's and I I, my approach has never been uh, to attract or hold an audience. You know, what drew me to it was just the ability to have these types of conversations with with people in a long format and just let it go anywhere. Just, you know, kind of connect with another human being and kind of pick their brain and, and see what kind of ideas emerge. And just the ability to do that and broadcast it and then have people provide feedback, as you were saying, and write you and be like, oh, you know, I love that conversation or that convert, that idea kind of changed my life. And I ended up doing this and I zigged where I, where I might have zagged. And you get all these feedback and stories. And like, it's such a powerful thing just to be able to express yourself, right? And, and you, you see the power of it through that feedback. And I think, you know, I guess a certain type of person, you and I are probably in that category, like we not only see the importance of doing that, but just kind of how, I don't know, how special and unique and powerful that ability is. And I, I don't mean like our, our, our talents. I mean the ability to just speak into this 
little black circular thing in front of us and have it be broadcast to the world and create a relationship with everyone listening as a result of that. It's, oh, it's, it's oh, mind boggling. Oh, no, no, it is. It's mind boggling. <clears throat> and uh, I was already experimenting with early versions of what we're doing right now. Uh, when I built my first acoustic modem, I mean, this is this is how far back I go. I had a Sinclair ZX81, and my buddy had a either a ZX80, maybe he had the the BBC computer or something. And and these were you know these were just very simple devices that had a TV modulator, and you could do it would it would run basic. That that's what it had on board, and you could write your programs to a cassette tape, or you could read them in from a cassette tape. So it was all audio. And so there, I was like, oh wait a minute. So we can do this directly, and then we built these acoustic uh, couplers by getting surplus phones um, and then dismantling them, and then you know, so just putting the the listener, the receiver, and the and the speaker, and then putting the phone on top in reverse order. And we were doing about thirty baud. That's literally the speed. So you, I'd type a key, and it would show up on my buddy's screen. And now we're like, holy shit, this is so great. We're like typing to each other, and then we could send a program. Back in the day, the BBC had the Acorn computer. This is where I started to transition into, into computers. Um, and they would, on the BBC, they would broadcast, I think it was every Tuesday night, the program of the week. And so for about three minutes, all you'd hear on BBC is, and you recorded that and you could read it into your computer and you had their program of the week. Some basic program that did something. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- so now, now you're talking all my areas, right? Now you're getting me with broadcasting. Now you're doing stuff with computers. And uh, I, I'm, j- I'm just a super, super, super nerd who never had the focus to learn anything very well, <laughs> except for talking about shit. And you're right. My specialty in broadcasting is speaking with someone. I'm not great at just me uh, to the big, bad audience. I love interacting with somebody. and um Although I'm acutely aware that there are people listening, um, I think I'm a pretty good conversationalist, and so and I've, I've I've built you know a broadcasting career out of that. Yeah, and so I looked at some videos from the '80s era <laughs> where you you have the '80s hair yes. and you have the uh, the black leather pants. And so, first question is, what was having true '80s hair like? And two. What was that era like? Because I saw, you know, I, I watched a lot of YouTube videos and stuff, and you're mixing it up with uh, different artists and famous people, and I'm sure you engaged in that lifestyle to some degree. So what, what was that era of your life like? I have to go back just a little bit to the Netherlands before I went to MTV, because in the mid-'80s, I did a TV show from 84 to 87 called Countdown. And this was, again, they only had two channels, so it was Sunday night. It was Adam Curry and whatever else, he, whatever international superstars he had. And this was the time when the Netherlands, particularly for music, but other goods, was the gateway to Europe. So we had David Bowie, Tina Turner, Rolling Stones. I mean, you name a, an artist from the 80s that was, you know, important, contemporary, whatever it is, I interviewed them and I had a benefit. I spoke was English. Was this TV? Was this TV still too, or or, ra- or just radio? This is TV. This was all television. Okay. Was was okay. an hour a week on Sundays. And the how did you were, find being in front of the camera? Oh, it was it was horrible because I had to develop <laughs> a way of of not ticking with my Tourette's while I'm on camera. So it took inc- it was it took incredible effort uh, to do that. And 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 I know much later now that if 
you're not so messed up about it, then you tick much less and it's not that obvious to people. But to to someone who's self-conscious, you know, everything is, oh my God, everyone can see I'm crazy. Sure, sure. Um, but so I was able to handle, but I people were more focused, of course, because people don't see all the stupid stuff we think they see. Um, they were like, holy shit, this guy's not just interviewing artists. He's having a conversation with him. So at that time, the level of interviewing skills of international superstars was, so what is the album about? You know, it's like, okay, all right. So is this a live song? All right, I got it, got it, got it. So I would have a conversation and the artists would feel, oh, okay. I, they would immediately feel comfortable. Right. It was actually Sammy Hagar who was on the show um, who said, dude, you should talk to MTV because you'd be perfect for them. And this was, I mean, MTV started in 81. So he was telling me this in 85. Uh, and MTV was still very, very, very small at the time, but they had had a couple, you know, the v- video music awards were getting attention. Um, like they just had the Don Henley boys of summer was video of the year. And so you could see it kind of rising, even in Europe, we were hearing about it. And, uh, I literally got a call from Steve Leeds at MTV one day and he said, Hey, you want to come and work for us? And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, MTV where in new york said yeah okay fine how a couple months i'll be there i was like holy shit this will be fun i i'm gonna get an opportunity to live in manhattan so just before this and uh i had uh, met my then first wife and she was a very famous singer dutch singer uh well with the international allure as we would say and uh she said we gotta we gotta we gotta showbiz you we gotta hook you up said, we got to get rid of this penis head. We're going to make some hair out of you. So, so she created the Adam Curry hair, um, which I am eternally grateful for because it was my hook. You know, it was something that you said, everyone knows the hair. I was held hostage by this hair, okay? I mean, this was, this was I am a victim of my hair. I can say it because um, <laughs> it took 30 minutes every morning, and I could not do it myself, 30 minutes every morning for my wife to do my hair and like hairspray and combing and all that jazz it teasing the whole thing and mtv at the time had no wardrobe no makeup they barely had a lighting director they were pretty much shooting in a closet it was very very low tech so we had to kind of do everything ourselves i guarantee you 100 i never wore leather pants uh but i did have the leather jackets on no no never saw me no 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 no, no. never all had right, leather. Okay. come on man we all saw ross no no <laughs> Once we saw Ross's episode, we're like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, and so it was very difficult because if I went on location, then I would have to do my hair by myself. And this was, it was, I couldn't dive in the pool. You know, I couldn't take, I'd have to go to bed, not take a shower, get my hair wet. I mean, it was, now I'm now 57. I have a beautiful head of hair still. I love my hair. I talk to it every single day and said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But it was, it was definitely, um, it was a thing and it, and it worked really well because every, it was, you know, on television, um, I don't have a big head, but Merv Griffin, who arguably is one of the best television producers of all time, uh, wheel of fortune. I mean, he's, he's in all, all the big shows. He famously said the most successful on television are the ones that have a big head. And if you look at Jay Leno, you look at Pat Sajak, I mean, and if you don't have a big head, then you can give that perception with big hair. And so that gives the, and it's just, I, I can't explain why, but I think it is absolutely true. So, well, you know, for, for what it's worth, 
Because like a lot of people look pretty strange back in the 80s, right? But as I'm watching your videos, I'm like, he looks good. Yeah, he looks pretty good, all things well, also, considered. <laughs> also, all the hair bands had that hair, right? Everybody had hair that way. Everyone right, was, right. you know, and and just it was it was the, the look of the time. Um, now, when I came in, they said, we'd like you to, you know, I was doing stuff. They said, we'd like you to host Headbangers Ball. Uh, I think Kevin Seal was kind of, it was just kind of starting. And for me, it was like, I'm not necessarily a heavy metal guy, but I've always appreciated the musicianship because there's some good musicians in, in metal bands. Now, can I sing along with a lot of songs? Absolutely. But I figured, look, if we're all, if, if the bands are going to be in leather and big hair and all that, well, why shouldn't I? So Headbangers Ball, and I had, again, an attitude to go with it. Dad, the hardest rock in three hours on MTV every Saturday night, Headbangers Ball. And, you know, it was show business. Uh, but, uh, I, I pulled it off somehow and it it worked really well. What I did not do, and this is also, um, my first wife, there was no indulging in, in rock and roll lifestyle. No, I was the guy that finished my work, went home, got enough sleep, was well prepared. Yep. And also, honestly, I was never really invited to anything. There I was never, I never really saw anything. Uh, but they're just not, and maybe I was oblivious. I was, I was, I mean, I've always, as you know, I've always been a weed smoker, but nothing else. Um, and I, you know, would I go to a, yeah, I went to the rock and roll hall of fame dinners, of course, you know, that, that was back when it meant something when there was no cameras and it was just the music industry and the crazy shit that, you know, it was like fight club. You didn't know what happened unless you were there. Uh, I go to stuff like that, but, um, no, never really did that. And I think that uh, that's why I look so beautiful still. <laughs> so no, no crazy stories from the mtv era well i have crazy stories but not not really i mean you know i went to moscow with the moscow music peace festival and you know with ozzy osbourne and the scorpions and bon jovi and motley Crue, and we were you know behind the behind the wall before the wall came down in moscow did we was there some crazy shit yeah i can go on for hours about crazy stuff but mtv itself was kind of nerdy and and you know it was it was run by radio people who really right. saw it as you know uh, radio uh, radio with pictures uh, and and I think that that actually didn't do a lot of justice for MTV uh, in the beginning um, but no it it just I don't know it wasn't around me and I wasn't really interested in it I, I was interested in doing great shows and mm-hmm. and I could do anyone's job at the studio in fact. Uh, Rick Kelman, who was the audio engineer, he passed away two years ago. Miss him a lot. He was my best friend uh, at, at MTV. Um, we had a really good relationship. And uh, and sometimes I'd just sit, he would go, I had these, I had a dressing room. I had one of the few with a bathroom. And so it's like, hey, man, can I take a dump in your uh, your in your uh, dressing room? Said, yeah, of course. I said, while you're there, you know, open some letters. Because I had eight or nine mail bags, full sacks filled with mail addressed to me and you could never get through it. So we just take turns, you know, going to the bathroom, reading and looking at pictures that girls send and stuff. And I do the audio. I mean, I, I do perfect. I can do the, they wouldn't even know the, the director didn't even know that it wasn't Rick. It was me. So I mean, I could do everyone's job and I was always interested. So I was always learning. I, I probably knew enough about everyone's job that I could really could do it. And that, I, that really, mm, that, and now that I think about it, that's carried through to, to what I'm doing today that if you can at least learn what someone is doing and what their piece is, 
then, oh man, does it make it that much easier to talk and communicate and help coordinate stuff? And so, so all these concepts, I'm, I'm very good at understanding it and how it fits together. Uh, I just really have never been, I could never dedicate myself to, you know, writing code or, 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 uh, or images or anything that all I can do is I can spit in a microphone. I'm pretty good with audio editing and, and making sound. That's what I do. Yeah. What, uh, I got to ask about some of the crazy stuff that you could talk about from Moscow. Like what? You said you could talk oh, for hours. Sure. I, yeah, I can talk. Give me, a, give me a short example. All right, so you, <laughs> the Moscow Music Peace Festival was a keep Doc McGee out of jail operation. Doc McGee was very famous manager, still is, uh, and he managed at the time the biggest rock bands. He managed uh, Motley Crue, uh, Bon Jovi, um, Ozzy Osbourne, a couple others. And one of his Learjets had been uh, caught entering Miami with, I don't know, like 5,000 pounds of weed or something. And so, you know, <laughs> oops. And uh, so to get out of that, somehow he struck a deal and it was the Moscow Music Peace Festival, which would be an anti-alcohol and drugs concert um, in, uh, in Moscow. And this is, again, before, this is 1988, so it's before the wall came down. Um. And uh, so we all got in an airplane, a 7, 737 stretch uh, Newark, uh, which was just standard seating. It was quite uncomfortable, but it was this whole plane filled with rockers, their girlfriends, wives, and a, a, a th- two-man MTV crew and me. And it was pretty fucking intense. So first we had to stop off in Germany to pick up the Scorpions, you know, the Scorpions, ah! who later, as you know, uh, they, they had that song, The Wind of Change, which became the anthem for the takedown of the Berlin Wall, which to this day, uh, I'm pretty convinced uh, was a CIA operation, including that song. But that's a, there's actually a podcast about that. It's a different story. So imagine for, I'm sitting there. pinning that one. Yeah. I'm sitting there and Ozzy Osbourne's on the, on the flight with his wife, Sharon, who, by the way, looks nothing like Sharon Osbourne today. She was like a, just a round, roundy roly-poly English housewife, bad complexion, um, and Ozzy, Ozzy, and the, but the you know, geezer butler was on, so they pretty much had, uh, had uh, Led Zeppelin on board, right? Um, Led Zeppelin had Deep Purple. And, and then Ozzy, who was completely hammered, is walking up to the two laboratories mid, midships, and, is, and this, this, they're occupied, and he said that, and he's just standing there because he can't get in. And then the next time we look, he's pissed his pants like like a, like a six year old. His whole his whole front of his pants are wet. And I'm like, holy shit, man! I just saw Ozzy piss himself. Now I'm living. You know. Then he's like, we were in the hotel. I mean, there was. I mean, the hotel. They turned on the hot water in the hotel just for us because you know it was winter and there's no hot water in Moscow. The mattresses were stuffed with with hay. I mean, this was the the top luxury hotel in Moscow. Three in the morning, the Moscow Hells Angels pop out. You know, they're f- going crazy. We're bribing people with with t shirts. We're drinking vodka on Red Square. I mean, at you know, five in the morning, just debauchery, debauchery. But man, was it fun! And meeting the Russian <laughs> kids who could sing, they could sing the words phonetically. So they they had no lyrics, but they had cassette tapes smuggled in from Saudi Arabia. 
So the, and bootleg, so they could then at least listen to these songs. And these kids were so starved for anything they could get their hands on. It was, I mean, that was really the trip. Was uh, was was being with the the kids in Moscow who would just come and seek us out, and you know, and like, and you know, spoke a little bit of English, and but it was just that was an unbelievable experience. And oh man, there was so much going on there. It was a huge fight, you know. Uh, uh, Vince Neil, you know, was hitting uh, you know deck someone in Bon Jovi because they had bigger pyrotechnics at the end of the show. I mean, there was it was all the rock and roll <laughs> crap you'd expect was there. Right, right. That was. They're doing a documentary about it, so we'll see if that ever sees the the light of day. You know, as you're explaining this, it it kind of one of the thoughts that come to me is you mentioned, you know, going behind the Iron Curtain while it was still the Iron Curtain, and you know, because my I'm 36 years old, so my generation of people haven't really weren't really privy to that, right? And so the change that we're seeing in the world today, a lot of us. Would, would think we're seeing in terms of, you know, the panopticon state and, you know, the, all the controls that are being enacted, especially over the last 18 to 20, 24 months, you know, this is relatively new to a lot of us, but, you know, you worked and lived and traveled in an era where things were cemented in one way as a result of, let's say, you know, prior massive geopolitical shifts. And then you actually saw them, uh, you know, in real time. break down. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you saw you say them break down and change and by many accounts perhaps even improve for a certain period of time. So, how does that impact I mean, and this is a we're, we're taking totally uh we're getting off the freeway here for a second, but how does that change your perception of what's happening today and how you should feel about it and how you should expect it to develop and change? You know, having been a part of two eras of of, of great change, but, you know, both maybe from bad to good and maybe now from good to bad, like how does that inform how you see and expect things to unfold here? Um, the big question I know. No, but. no, no, no. It's actually a very good question. Very relevant because uh, now that I'm uh, 57, I see the patterns, you know, I see the repeats I see. And um, I've been fortunate enough that for the past 15 years, I've been able to speak with someone about it twice a week to say, hey, man, what is going on? So if you look back, for me, going back to 2005 is really when uh, maybe my, my red pilling starts, which is a, a poor misnomer. It's a misnomer. But, and the way it ha- because I was living in, uh, at the time in uh, London, and where we just decided to be for a while. And I had uh, internet, you know, we had fast, pretty fast internet, cable modems were a thing already. And just, you know, we, it was decent. And there was something taking place, a couple things taking place, but uh, the Lisbon Treaty was being voted on. And the Lisbon Treaty for the European Union was equal to the constitution for the European Union. And the European Union project has been going on for a long time, you know, since the uh, mid 50s with multiple iterations. And now they were coming to the point where they needed this constitution, the Lisbon Treaty, to be signed in order to um, have everyone have the same money, the euro, and everyone be able to have a European passport. At least that's what was being sold to the public. How great will it be when you don't have to go on vacation and get your and get your pesos or get your you know or get your um, 
uh, your Deutschmarks or your your Zlotis or whatever it is. We'll just all have the Euro. It'll be so great. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And no more Schengen area. You'll be able to go from Germany to France to the Netherlands, uh, wherever, with one passport. There'll be no passport control. You can just walk through it. By the way, this is not like the United States of America. It's completely different, but it kind of sounds the same. And so this Lisbon Treaty was interesting because uh, the Netherlands and France said no. And they voted it down. They didn't like the, the, what was in it. And then the European Union went, Mm, no, no, no. We have to vote over because you clearly didn't understand what was going on. You need to redo. And they did this with Ireland too. And it was, so then Ireland didn't vote for the second one. So ultimately, whatever they did, everyone says yes. <laughs> okay. And if you want to know how that went with the referenda and all kinds of fuzzy stuff. But meanwhile, I had the internet. So I was searching and downloading stuff. And I look at this Lisbon Treaty, the text of it. I'm like, holy crap, they're not telling us this on TV. There's all kinds of protocols in here that if you run away from law enforcement in the European Union and they shoot and kill you, that's legal kill, okay? Um, relevant to today. In the European Union protocols, by law, you can be picked up and, and incarcerated if you have a communicable disease. Interesting in context of COVID, isn't it? Um, now, now, now I'm also learning about how money works. And, I, and it took me much longer than this, you know, than, than this research I was doing at the time to understand. Whoa, wait a minute! If no one has their own money, and the South, like a country like Greece, gets into some kind of trouble, they can't get out of it because they don't have their own currency to inflate and you know, uh, or devalue or do whatever they need to do to get out of the problem. It would be a full European central bank system which of course turned out to be exactly what happened with Greece. They couldn't get out of it and they're still crippled by it. Something else happened. A book came out called Legacy of Ashes by a former New York Times writer, Tim Weiner. And I'm reading this book. It's about the CIA. My uncle, Donald Gregg, was top guy in the CIA for many, many years. He was uh, a national security advisor to Bush Sr. Uh, in fact, he was, uh, uh, he was part of Iran-Contra and I, I don't, not exactly what happened, but he became ambassador to Korea after the hearing. So he didn't go to jail or anything. And I don't think he, I think he's a, a patriot 100%, but CIA is messy business. And mm. I'm looking, I'm reading this book and I'm like, oh, so I call up Don, 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 is this true? He says, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much how I remember it. And I'm like, oh my God. So we're, we're just a bunch of dicks worldwide, the stuff the CIA has been doing. I didn't say that to him, but um, I, later I have had these conversations with him. Um, and so that just blew my mind. And, and from that moment on, uh, this was right around, so moving forward towards the 2008 election. Uh, and I, was a, uh, I liked what Ron Paul had to say. I was kind of getting into the constitutionalist mindset. Not a libertarian, but just I like the constitution. I liked what, what under, learning about the Federal Reserve and Jekyll Island and the gold standard and all of these things that, you know, what's like a treasure trove. I'm understanding why things are messed up. I'm start, mm. It's starting to kind of get through. Um, so all of that was, was really incredibly helpful for me to have my eyes open and recognize the patterns that happen over and over again. The boom and bust cycle. So I've seen it now. 87. Was the when I landed in New York, it was Black Thursday. Uh, thir I think it was Thursday, uh, eight, 1987, when just the, the markets crashed and didn't pay much attention to it. 
But then, um, you know, then we got 2008. And now I had a little bit of understanding of who the players are and what was going on. I'm like, whoa, this is interesting. And all this stuff that was being, you know, the, we need a trillion dollars, sign this piece of paper now. I mean, like, this is not, a, this is not governance. This is not a country. And, and um, sadly, around the same time, 2010, really, um, I was following a, uh, a financial conference of pharmaceutical CEOs who were presenting their roadmaps, their futures. And guess what it was? vaccines. And we're going to have a vaccine for everything, baby. We're going to have a vaccine to stop you from drinking, stop you from snorting coke, stop you from smoking, uh, against depression. What these have to do with vaccinations, I don't know. But clearly, they already had mRNA technology and were very excited about uh, gene uh, modification, which is what this is about. Um, And then we went through the H1N1 crisis and the swine flu crisis. and and, And the same people the same words, the same, we got to get vaccines, this testing of using sketchy technology never intended for testing. This is the third time I've seen this. So when this happened, we're like, oh my God, but this time they got it right. So the sad, the sad thing for me, I think Dvorak and I were talking about it just yesterday on the show, is that ultimately there is a powerful entity of people, not necessarily organized, they don't have decoder rings or anything, but they really want less people on earth. So any way to keep less people on earth is kind of their thing. And 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 I really cynically look through most governmental actions through that lens most of the time. It's like, mm-hmm. and and if you look at it that way, and and I'm not even sure if it's good or bad, but at least it should be something we all talk about. You know what I mean? <laughs> it yeah. should, you know, should we only have 500 million people? Should we have unlimited growth? I don't know. But now, having lived in so many different countries, um, having settled in Texas for 11 years, which I never expected, um, and now seeing what has become of the Netherlands, you know, I was there in the 70s. I see the differences. It's horrific. It's horrific. The people are 100% controlled, manipulated, and they like it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yeah. This is kind of what I was getting at with the question, right? And I guess there was two parts to it. One, just kind of the assessment of it, and two, like, do you see this as a, a pendulum type? You know, kind of swinging from one side and then the next. And you know, it's funny you mentioned 2005 because I think it was around that time where I guess Amazon had like really come on my radar. I was, you know, eighteen, nineteen years old, something at the time. And I just, you know, I've always been super curious. So I just bought every single book on global geopolitics, history. Like I I wanted to understand how it all worked, right? Because, you know, you have a lot of questions when you emerge in the world. And so you end up reading about, you know, uh, the way the FDA works, the way APAC, the Israel lobby works, tales of an economic hitman, what happened in Iran, what happened in Egypt, what happened in Panama, what happened in with Noriega, what happened in World War One, World War Two, Korea, like you you get this picture and like you of course you always have to be careful not to just assume that because somebody articulated a good argument that it is the truth right but what it at a minimum what it does do is say gives you something to juxtapose the really tidy history you learned in university or high school right like those are two very different stories and so at least it causes you to question 
which one is correct and to what degree and for what reasons might the history that you learn in either of those instances be biased in some way, whether the mainstream narrative is biased or whether the counter narrative is biased. And this, you know, one of the main uh, principles or the ethos of Bitcoin is don't trust verify, right? And that's what Bitcoin, both the protocol allows you to do. But as a result of that, I think it's imbued in a lot of the people in this that in, end up engaging in this networking culture and saying, like, I don't just de facto trust you, whoever you might be, three-letter agency, government agency, big corporation. I don't just de facto trust you, right? And, and, and that's why we like to try to investigate and gather information and all that kind of stuff. And if we can't get enough information, I'll speak for myself because I hate speaking for everyone all the time, but, like, if I can't get sufficient information to give me the confidence to make a decision, then I abstain from making the decision, right? And, and that's what's so crazy about the current era we're in, because people are being disallowed from abstaining, which is absolutely insane. But, you know, and this kind of ties into the work that you're doing now, because in, in abstaining from that uh, decision, and like you said, these are, are at least topics deserving of discussion, right? Like what... Did U.S. foreign policy in Iran and Egypt and all in Iraq and Afghanistan, what did all this foster and how was it executed? I mean, there's a million questions around this stuff. And if you can't have the discussion, well, then one, we can't learn. But far more importantly, we can't get to the truth. And in my opinion, like that's that's the ultimate. That's you want to be basing your actions based on truth, right? Because if you're not, you're basing them on delusion or illusion or mis or lies or whatever. And the fact that now we are entering into an era where not only our money is censorship resistant, right? So if you can't stop me from sending value anywhere, but those rails are permitting two really, really important things. One is better preservation of privacy, which is necessary if you're going to be speaking the truth in an era where people want to kind of squash you and get rid of you for doing so, for doing so. And two, the means to actually do it, right? Like the, you, you can actually now transmit your discussion you can have censorship resistant discussions and you can even support yourself while doing it i.e streaming sats and being paid for it without anybody able to stop that now we're still in an era where like most of the communication happens on things like youtube and social media and apple and you can be deplatformed de and you mentioned some high profile cases before and alex jones and the president of the united states for god's sakes um, but the, the bigger ish that becomes an issue, the more people that happens to, the more people recognize how much of a problem that is, the more they're going to gravitate to these tools that you've been developing and working on and that we've all been starting to use more and more. And again, back to that idea of the pendulum, you got to think that's a good thing for the pendulum sweep, you know, swinging in the direction of greater freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of, of expression, freedom of thought. And then hopefully that bleeds into more rational, logical action, right? Because ultimately that's what we're aiming for. But here's how I look uh, at it. <clears throat> yes. And, and of course I agree. Here's how I see it through the investigating and researching. And I've, man, I've read so much legislation. I mean, I, I read the National Defense Authorization Act. It's, I mean, I'm 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 good at finding the things that are in there that are messed up, and it's just it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how much comes through. But really, um, 
I'll speak on behalf of what I, my vision of the United States. Americans are good people. We are good in our hearts. We mean well. We, we absolutely carry a very, a heavy burden of racism from way back when. Um, and we, we never want that to return. We want to be good people. We want to be citizens. We want, I mean, in general, Americans are really, really, really nice, beautiful people, but please, we cannot ignore three dead presidents, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, JFK. They all said there is an evil, an evil force of which men do not dare speak that is amongst us. Uh, some call it the military-industrial-academic complex. It was actually that. It was, it's become military-industrial complex, but the original speech was military-industrial-academic ac- uh, com- uh, complex. Um, money is the corruption. And we all, you know, we all know that once you have absolute power, you know, power corrupts absolutely. But money is what drives it all. We know the 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 richest families in the world. The quotes are, "Hey, I don't care who makes the laws as long as I as long as I control the money." And it's obvious that we don't control our own money. That's that's the that is the crux of everything. And absolutely. And the more you, I mean, my more former banker friend. I remember seeing him white as a sheet in, in 2000, like nine or 10. He said, oh my God, tomorrow we'll know. I mean, what do you mean? And the next day he said, and he's, he was like so relieved. Like, oh man, the whole world almost came to a halt. You know, whatever <laughs> that was wrong with their banking system, he says, mm-hmm. you have no idea. Everything would have stopped. And you know what? I believe him. I'd really believe him. If something drastically goes wrong with the liquidity flow that these guys are tinkering with, I'm sure it could actually blow something up really bad. And and sure. I've never seen him. He's not a guy to be scared. He looked white as a sheet and how happy he was after that. So everything is fucked up because of centralized money. Completely fucked. And I'll just start basically, if we go back to the, to the, the original days of medicine, you know, it was the... Um, Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie, these big institutions who to this day are the ones providing huge endowments to universities. This is where the, in my mind, the biggest problem we have in the United States certainly is the universities and the endowments and the money flow. And um, all they were interested in is when it comes to medicine, Johns Hopkins, make sure that we're really on medication. We don't want to be homeopathic. We want to be allopaths. You see? So, and that's why you have this huge split. I mean, there's, and many times it's the same cure, but in different doses and different prices. So they focus very much on the diagnose prescribe, which has resulted in incredible advances in very, uh, in medical advances and bones, you know, plumbing stuff like arteries, heart, bones, man, we can do all kinds of great stuff with that. Once we start fucking with your brain and SSRIs and all this stuff, it got real murky for me. And, and, you know, this, you can't, there's not really a lot of good information on what's going on with all this other stuff. And then again, so that's the money controlling which direction we go with, with medication. Um, now let's look at pharmaceuticals. What is the biggest, uh, spender, spender, uh, of advertising money on television, certainly and television news, it's advert, it's, uh, pharmaceuticals. And, and, you know, they, and they, the big bonanzas with their, with their Viagras and a couple other things, but they really determine, you can't say anything negative about a pharmaceutical company on a mainstream uh, network. You can't do that because they will up and leave. And if you're not fired before then, 
So again, you just see how the money is really what what ruins everything. And I'm the thing that I'm most worried about now is, although I would like things to get worse so they can get better, I think that's the only way, is we're now moving the dollar. U.S. dollar is the is the you know the universal the world's uh, security the world's currency um, because of uh, it's tied to oil. And so what is being done right now, let's get rid of oil. <laughs> I mean, it's, you got to nuance it because it's definitely not going to get rid of oil, but we got to move to electric cars. And so they're trying to debase the U.S. dollar from being important because oil is not supposed to, and, and I'm not saying that it's not, but in the people's minds, oh no, this is death. Oil is death, dinosaur fluids, no good, got to have wind, solar, everything. So the dollar is, in my mind, over and done with. It's, 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 it's done. And the only, the only way out that I can deduce that is clearly in front of me is Bitcoin. Mm. Because once it, it fixes so much just in perception, just in people's own perception, it really can change the world because we've gotten out of control. I wasn't, my fault, by the way, I wasn't paying attention to what dickhead was running for the school board. I'm sorry. You know, now we got to go fix that. We definitely have to go fix some of this stuff because I don't care what you want to teach children, but you can't tell me that I have no say in it and you're the only one and you're the government. I don't think so. So yeah. these things are out of control. And it's you know, because you, of the centralized money. Well, exactly. You know, and this is why another one of the most famous sayings in the Bitcoin world is fix the money, fix the world, right? Because if, if that primary coordinating mechanism that coordinates all other activity that determines the shape and structure and power of various institutions and ultimately incentivizes all behavior downstream of that, if there's corruption in that, well, that's going to be imbued in everything downstream of it, right? But if you fix that at the top, if you don't allow the corruption, if you don't allow the unfairness, if you improve upon the qualities, which again relates to the work you're doing in terms of removing friction for sending value across or between people across spaces and time and time, if you do that, then you fix a lot of that stuff downstream. And that's good, right? You, there's less opportunity for, for a lot of the corruption that takes place. There's, there's, less, there's less incentive to co-op the government in whatever way suits your particular enterprise. And that, you know, so yeah, thank God for Bitcoin. As well, we often even, say. I'll take it, I'll take it to a, maybe a, a little different place in the constitution. Um, if you don't mind, I shall share a little bit of the U.S. Constitution because it's sure. uh, sometimes we forget to go re revisit that. Um, I'm going to skip the. Uh, well, no, actually, I'll, I'll read the first and uh, piece of the second paragraph because it becomes clear. Um, when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Uh, uh, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires they should declare the cases which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We've probably heard this part of the paragraph. That all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter 
or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. That line in the Constitution is being carried out by Bitcoin, not by guns, not by militia, not by so-called domestic violent extremists. It is a silent revolution run by people between 25 and 45 and it's happening, and I think some of the uh, elites are catching on to it. But that is what we were doing right now. We are, we are using a constitutional, some would say God-given right, to change what we see is wrong. And notice the Constitution tell, doesn't tell you how you have to do it. It doesn't mm-hmm. say you got to go in, overthrow the government, you got to go rush the Capitol. No, I, which I probably don't think was what happened. That's irrelevant. It doesn't say you have to have a, a voting process. No. But we have all of that. We have a voting process. We have voted. We have a democratic system in place. We've done yeah. the work. It's here. It's taking over slowly. But this is a doomsday machine for the current system, in my mind. And that is why I'm here. That's my, that's, this is my legacy. I will work on this and spit, keep spitting in my mic until they carry me out feet first. I love this. This is the opportunity. And, you know, I got AR-15s. It's, I'm laughing at them now. It's like, you know, that was kind of cute. We thought that we'd need that. No, no. It's not even an alternate internet. No, it's not Rumble or Locals. Um, I will put podcasts in there because I, in my mind, and this, I don't think I just invented anything, but I think the discovery of putting all these pieces together with ininterruptible inter- in- money, as you say, um, along with a platform where you can continue to literally have free speech. You know, a podcast is people talking, so it's speech, and it can't be shut down by anybody. This is yeah. ground zero, I think, and it's training wheels, training wheels. We're so early in this process, but to get people familiar with the value of Bitcoin, now it's something cool because the 100 Satoshis per minute that I was sending to the podcast to a podcaster a year ago, now actually is twice as valuable. Now, how does that, that get your attention? Yeah, it gets the podcaster's attention. Also, gets my attention. I'm reevaluating. Hey, now mm. I'm now I'm in a pricing mechanism. There's no Silicon Valley douchebag telling me it has to be nine ninety nine a month. No, I'll determine. You know, so it's uh, so it'd be six thousand sats. So you know, it's a little bit more. It's uh, you know, it's like five bucks. You know, per hour. Well, I think that's worth it. And by the way, it's not worth, I'm going to boost them an extra five. You know, these are my decisions now. And yeah, I want to, I want to talk more about lightning because there's, there's so much and what you guys have been doing, there's so much there, but you know, it's interesting. First of all, when you're reading that, I just think, man, how wise were those people that put down those words to, to take to distill, you know, philosophy and political experience and sociology, anthropology, everything, and, and put into those words. Because as you're reading them, I'm like, I don't even think most politicians in the world today would even understand those words. I don't think they would register really about why those words are important. And, you know, one of them is inalienable. And I think one of, you know, and this would be, a, this is a highly contentious statement, you know, today, and many people would disagree, but I think what some of the things that are happening today show is that those rights, in fact, are not inalienable. They are highly alienable. 
right? Like rights are, are, are being revealed to be temporary permissions, which if you can't defend, you can't uphold. And that's not how it's supposed to be, right? The very apparatus for upholding them has become corrupted in, in many ways. And the reason why I think, you know, Bitcoin is often called freedom money is because it instantiates the inviolability of the primary property right that, or let's say the secondary property right that you have, because the first is to your life, right? But the second is to the concentration of your stored time, your wealth, right? And the highest concentration of that is money. And it, it instantiates an inviolability into that. And so now it's, I mean, and to use, I guess, my own terminology here, it is completely and at very low cost defensible. And that means that you can maintain it. So it is a, it is a type of inalienability that now everybody has access to over one of the most important property rights in their life, which is their stored capital, their labor, their expenditure of energy, et cetera. And that then, of course, bleeds into many other areas of their life. Well, if I've established sovereignty and freedom over that, how else might I do so? And you mentioned other methods, you know, whether it be self-defense or communications, preserving privacy, all this kind of stuff. Like it just pushes out the perimeter into those things where people are, are you know, first of all, start considering those things. And then they start saying like, hey, this freedom thing, this self-determination thing, that's, that's pretty cool. Like I want to I establish that in other areas. I, I'd like to be able to defend the rights that I think are supposed to be inalienable but are being infringed upon now. I'd like to be able to defend those more. Um, import, I'm, I'm a, to the detriment sometimes, I am a very literal person. I've learned this from my partner Dvorak and sometimes it's very annoying um, because uh, you get into a mode of listening to what people are actually saying. Words matter and sometimes you read into it what you shouldn't. I, I want to point out that the actual word is unalienable. Uh, it's often, often confused with inalienable. But I have looked them both up just to make sure they do, they are interchangeable. But what's interesting is the definition of uh, in or unalienable is impossible to take away, but get this, impossible to give up. You cannot, you cannot give up those rights. It is in or unalienable. And the both words mean that? So they yes, are they, interchangeable? They both, yeah, they are interchangeable. Okay. Uh, I'm just a stickler. In the Constitution, it's unalienable, though. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes. Okay. But it, I'm looking at the definitions, and it's the same. But it, 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 I'm looking at, uh, here's another one. Not transferable to another, not capable of being given away. Not capable. It is so strong, this word, that but it can... But can it be taken away? No, cannot be taken, cannot be given. That is what the word means. So you cannot take my right, you, because I didn't. I cannot give it to you. This is the this is the stuff. I guess that, that definition has been lost on a lot <laughs> it of people. Has. I, honestly, <laughs> honestly, it was lost on me. I'm glad I looked it up because I'm like, yeah. is it inalienable or unalienable? I want to make sure. And it's the same. It means the same. But you, so that word means by law, I can't give it up. Not I'm not allowed to. I can't. Wow, that's some heavy shit. But yet, I would say there's some unconstitutional stuff going on around here. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> um so but you but you are right. I mean, I think Bitcoin uh takes some of those ideas and actually by some, you know, call it a miracle, divine providence, 
you know, uh, insight, eureka moment, whatever, actually brings the necessary components together to instantiate the meaning behind some of those words, which is absolutely mind blowing. And which is why I think it's kind of this gravity well for freedom that's sucking everybody in who thinks about these concepts and who agrees that they're important and who agrees that they should not and maybe cannot, according to those words, be violated and are being drawn to something which actually makes those words true, I guess. Um, I think some of those words true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so bullish on people caring about words anymore. I mean, this, this is a big problem. And <laughs> we have we have problems with with people reading. People like headlines. Uh, don't you know? Which is also a problem of paywalls. You know, like I had read the headline, but I couldn't read the article. You know, so we we're going to have to approach it from a different way. And and honestly, John, people are going to have to be voted off the island. You know, not everyone's going to make it. That's just a fact of life. You know, there's just people who just won't won't make it they won't make it through the process you know it's not like people are going to be dropping dead but uh and this is not for me brother this is for you this is for your kids this is for my daughter this is this is for the next generation it's going to take a while it's going to take you know this, these institutions are locked in but they are shaky and the best thing to do i think personally which in america is very possible we have the well first of all we just discussed we have the legal right but we have every opportunity they say, you know what? Uh, no, thanks. I'm just going to cr- start a new school here with these parents. Nah, you know what? I, I think I'm just going to, uh, you know, pool with some people and uh, create our own uh, electric generation. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that we can do. You know, I really don't need to go to your stupid supermarket uh, that is out of stuff anyway. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do some some vegetables and uh, bird dog across the street. You know, he's going to do the the venison. You know, these types of things are going to come back. I think the supply chain issues, which we're seeing now, which I believe can be very severe, certainly when it comes to farming, our farmers are in very, very deep trouble. Um, uh, they've kind of been forced into a um, green agenda of zero tilling soil, which means they have to, they're much more reliant on uh, glyphosate, glyphosate, glyphosate. Uh, Roundup, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, uh, it's the mean. it's the Monsanto stuff, uh, mm-hmm. you know the engineered seeds, and you know now those prices have quintupled. So you know, will that will they actually have the output they want? I mean, that directs food, uh, impacts food directly, and Americans are going to learn very quickly that wow, man, we get a lot of shit from China, don't we? Because it's not going to show up. And it's not just China, or it's not just truckers. It's 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 may even be intentional for all I know, but it's happening. And mm-hmm. uh, and you know what? Uh, some parents will have to learn that there weren't always diapers you could throw out, and you may have to go back to cloth diapers and washing them in a diaper pail. You know, this kind mm-hmm. of stuff may come back. Yeah, and I think there's two things about that. One, when the money starts to break down which I think it has been for many years, and maybe we're entering into an accelerated period of that, then the coordination function that it provides also breaks down. So even if you remove any, any sort of agenda by any particular parties, like it just does its job less well because it's been so abused by the people who control it. And that means that, yeah, it, the, 
you have less than you other than you had before and your access to things is diminished and you know that that's a difficult thing to turn around our response is obviously something like bitcoin but back to the constitution for a moment did they not say there too that only gold and silver should be money and cuz you you brought up the example of like some people are not going to make it and some people are going to realize like you know we're just going to decide to do it another way and in in my mind i think it's like yeah well sure decide to do it another way but the government there's many examples these days of the government coming after people who attempt to do it some other way and you get put into a you know a legal justice system where if the government has infinite amounts of resources and money to throw at you then it's far more difficult to put up that fight but again those people who initially wrote those documents recognizing that that would inevitably be an issue said you know only a sound money a money that can't be just created out of thin air uh, willy-nilly for whatever purpose that's the only money that should be used and of course that was done away with in a roundabout way with the federal reserve but it's being reinstantiated in bitcoin as hayek says in a roundabout way that can't be stopped and i agree that the incumbent uh system of money is going to be difficult to unseat but i also think that this thing could accelerate a lot faster than i mean let's let's just say for lack of a better term it may be growing exponentially not linearly so it's difficult for us to really project out how long this transition will take to occur and to the point you made about people being left behind i mean it goes without saying that a lot of people aren't going to be able to articulate and understand the kind of whole web of all of this stuff uh to the degree that like the hardcore bitcoiners or economists or sound money people might but they will respond as you were saying about the the 3000 satoshis that doubled in price over the course of the year they will respond ultimately and i think ultimately quickly to economic incentives i know you're you're you've interacted with paul etoy before and he's been on the show as well and you know he he has another company in addition to the cool project in sphinx called stackwork right and it's just you could be in a small town in the philippines uh and do some you know digital online uh, you know work graphic design or or even more simple stuff and be you don't need a bank account you don't need to provide personal information and you can be stream satoshis for your work and i think once you know people more and more people are onboarded to lightning and the various possibilities that it represents for economic inclusion and economic and the efficient allocation of of capital let's say and access to bitcoin ultimately as a savings mechanism that could really spread like wildfire and uh so of course in any transition you know people some people the laggards do not benefit as much or they have a harder time but because this system is so easy to opt into and because the economic incentive to do so is going to be so strong and the and the downside of not doing so is going to be a powerful motivator as well you know i'm hopeful at least that with innovations like the ones that you guys have been working on it could actually it could happen real quick and people won't have to get the whole uh you know thesis or value proposition to do so they'll just be like oh yeah you know i i like podcasting i have a podcast i'd like to be streamed Sats as I do it cool I'm I'm now a a content creator that gets paid in in Bitcoin awesome and that you know that bleeds into other areas I would like to revisit the constitution with you one more time uh article 1 section 8 congress shall have power to coin money regulate the value thereof 
and foreign coin. Section 10. No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. So this is a really tricky one, and I can't mm. I can't really uh, navigate all of it. But right. I believe that you know because of the regulate the value, that's how how kind of this was done. So it's not you know the technically I think they're within within bounds, but we know that in reality it's shit. But here here's here I think is where the the where where we get out of all of this and on a short term long term i don't know i'm patient um yes we need people using and valuing bitcoin and satoshis and um the uh, podcasting value for value is an excellent start and we can expand on how i think we'll, we'll grow that much bigger very rapidly um and I, and I also need to say that without Sphinx Chat, without Paul Etoy, I would not be talking to you about this right here. He got that so damn fast, and he immediately baked together uh, proof of concept with his you know skeleton crew. I'm in, eternally indebted to uh, what Paul did and how much he taught me and how much he understood what we are trying to achieve. And he and that first implementation was very, very, very key. Paul's an awesome guy. I love now. Him. Uh, so I'm very familiar with his Stackworks um, uh, program and uh, and his workers in the Philippines or the independent workers in the Philippines. Um, that is our future, you see. Uh, our future is what has happened. The Philippines will not come up to us. We're going down to them because we are going to build uh, alternative ecosystems. Podcasting 2.0 is one of them. Um, we know when it's it's an uphill battle, but I'm pushing very hard. We've got all these patriot hill country patriots. I'm like, look, you're doing the yard, Eric. Uh, I'm going to pay you in dollars today, but next time you get a Bitcoin wallet, I don't care how you put it back into dollars. If you if you stack it, whatever, I'm paying you in Bitcoin. Okay, you know they're okay with it. I'm like, yeah, fine, doesn't matter. I can still spend it this way. Yeah, don't worry about it. So everyone has, I think, their duty to, if you can, try and um, uh, conduct commerce or commercial interchange with uh, with Bitcoin. And, and Lightning makes that incredibly efficient, easy, and almost kind of fun. What is great is if we can stick on this alternative uh, economies, you know, so if we set up a homeschool with, a, with a, a number of other families, you know, maybe we should consider using Lightning for transferring money. It doesn't really matter that much. It Venmo or uh, or Blue Wallet, you know, or Breeze or whatever. I don't think you know. It's like you can get you can get people who are motivated enough by an external factor, by something else, to bring that on board. How do we gain the power? Is by stacking. So eventually, and it, we already kind of saw it in this uh, in this infrastructure bill with the crypto amendment snuck into it. Washington D.C. got a, a slight wake up call. Oh shit. There's a lot of people interested in this who have a lot of money. And the more we stack our sats, the more powerful we will be because our sats will be worth a multitude of what the, uh, the fiat fund coupons that the other guys are playing with will be worth. That is how you win. You win by having the most money. Now, we have to be careful, of course, because you know money is going to corrupt all kinds of people. But most of these people are coming from a very different place. And if you have the money to help someone who you think is uh, like here in Austin, we have um, 
Mackenzie Kelly, councilwoman. Uh, I don't even know what her politics are, uh, but I know what her actions are. And she's not even, it wasn't when I was in Austin, we're not even in our district. We'll support her. And who, how do I support her? With Bitcoin, Bitcoin gains. Why? Because I, I believe in her. I trust her as a human. And uh, I think she will do right by her constituents. Now, today I have, you know, a couple Bitcoin. You know, maybe that's worth much more in 10 years when she's up for a senator. You know, we're going to have to play part of that game. Um, but we will win because if, if, we ha- if, we're using, if we're using Bitcoin in our ecosystem, it, just, it, it will just become, will become incredibly powerful because of the actual wealth we have. You might not even yeah. have to use it. Just say, look, I got $300 million here. What do you want me to do? Crush you or you wanna, do you want me to go to your opponent? Crush? Or do you want to do something smart for everybody? I mean, I'm being yeah. pragmatic here. It's, it's a little less utopian, but, you know, I, I, I listen to the, like the, like the panel, you know, like we're, why are we bullish? Yeah, I, I, I'm, all, I'm all, all in on all of that, but I'm like brass tacks. Okay, we got to get sats into people's hands. We got to get people using wallets. They have to understand it, conduct with it. Podcasting is great. Everyone has their own idea of what value a podcast has to them. And it's going to be different for everybody. But at least yeah. you're understanding value. Um, if you're still living, you know, in partial fiat world, you do the translation. I mean, I'm a, that that ship sailed long ago for me. I don't even think about it anymore. I'm thinking in sats. That's all I can think of. You know, it's like I don't I don't do the conversion anymore. I kind of know the value of of uh, a million sats. You know, I divide it from there. Like oh, it should be okay like this, or I know like you know, 100 sats a minute. That just feels good. Mm-hmm. You know, these things uh, go real quick. I think, I think we can ship, man. I, podcasting 1.0, we had to tell people, okay, you listen to my podcast now. All right. I want you to go to my webpage. Here's the address. Type in www.currypodcast.com. I want you to scroll down to the bottom. Over on the right, you'll see a little RSS icon. It's orange. Okay. Now you got to right click on that. Uh, select copy link. Now alt tab back to your podcast player. Click the plus to add a subscription. Paste that in there and you're good to go. And you know what? People did it. Yeah. And they loved it and it got better over time and it improved and the developers came in. And I would say the biggest, what I'm most proud of is how we developed the, the split with, uh, with podcasting 2.0. And we developed this really with the developers in mind um, because there's, there's, there was no incentive for a, a software developer to make a podcast app. Because you, 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 you're not in the deal flow. You're not getting Joe Rogan's advertising money, but yet he's playing on your app. So, you know, can you track people and sell ads? Yeah, some people do that. There's some attribution, whatever. Yeah, you can do that. You can, you can get 99 cents from the app store. Yeah, okay. So what we came up with is a decentralized digital royalty system known as the, the value block. And uh, right off the bat, any podcast app that you are using for podcasting 2.0 will take 1% of whatever you send to somebody as their fee. Some take more. And by the way, they're transparent. Breeze takes 5%. Why? Look at it. We've got a full damn app here. We give you liquidity. We give you channels. We give you all this other stuff you can do. And here's your free podcast app. So when you send something, we're going to take 5%. That's for all our work. And you know how many people have complained about that? Zero. Podcast index. Mm-hmm. It's voluntary, but you know, uh, give us 1%, 1% of every transaction. Why? Because we need to keep the servers running. 
And that's an incentive model for us to keep it going. And it's purely by Satoshis. Now, we're not making money. We, I mean, we're, make, we're literally making money, but we're not taking any salaries. There's, there's not enough to, to do more than keep the, the node funded. For now, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so we'll, we're, we're happy to keep that going. So now you can <clears throat> incentivize the incentive. Well, we, we're, everyone's talking about it. There has to be an incentive. incentive. Lightning Network needs incentives. Right now, the, we almost have a little mini um, Lightning Network. Within the Lightning Network, we have uh, rings of fire that have zero base fee. You know, we're doing all these different things. We're collaborating with each other because we're incentivized, just not the way the Lightning Network initially intended. Because, you know, we're doing micropayments. Oddly, not very suitable, the Lightning Network. <laughs> People are so focused on building Wumbo channels and let's get, ah, let's make this thing like a better Bitcoin transfer. Fine. I need to send 10 sats to somebody. I can't have five sat free. So, you know, so out of necessity, we've created kind of sub networks and it's beautiful because even though I'm running a couple of nodes, I may not make a big fee on, um, on the routing. I make it on uh, on the actual value that someone is saying. Here's one percent of 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 what the transaction was for, not the actual transaction itself. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And you know, to your point about the two competing systems, and you know, first, it is really interesting to think like when Bitcoin, when the Bitcoin economy ten x's from here, and then at a hundred x's from here, like the amount of power that that will be able to um, levy for its own interest vis-a-vis the legacy system grows exponentially as well. And, you know, so that is a definitely an accelerant in this transition. But I, I think, like, I, I also think of it just in two economies competing with each other, like the fair, free, open one that, I mean, the, one of the things that boggles my mind is just the efficiency of the allocation of capital in Bitcoin, and in particular because of the Lightning Network now exists. Like the cost of capital, the sending of capital, receiving of ca- like I mean, it's real time capital allocation, right? And value transfer, as as you've just been discussing with with podcasting, right? You 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 pay for, you pay for what you listen to, and you know, lending markets are beginning to emerge now. And so, like, just how efficiently that economy allocates capital how many people it's open to how little opportunity there is for corruption on the base layer it's just going to mean that it dramatically outcompetes the other one which is highly susceptible to co- corruption is unfair the high cost to entry not open to everybody really poor and highly distorted allocation of capital through you know phony manipulated interest rates and and you know all of the the fuckery that goes on there right so those two things, I don't think they can actually coexist for that long because the, the more efficient economy is going to trounce the latter yes, one. Yes, yes, yes. And this is the, the argument that, that keeps popping up. So it's too hard. I've got to do an extra step. I've got, and, I, and my answer is yes, freedom always requires one extra annoying step. <laughs> it's, I guarantee you if it's about freedom, it's one. And so- I, the power that we have, I already feel. And how do I feel that? I feel incredibly empowered that I know that I can speak my mind, whatever I want to say, good, bad, indifferent, as long as I'm within the bounds of the Constitution, there are some things you can't say, 
was very limited. You can pretty much say anything you want. And I cannot be taken down for it. And they can't take away my livelihood for it. This is what every YouTuber is missing. Fucking idiots. Wake the fuck up. Mm. It's so stupid the way people are building businesses with that risk of someone being able to say, no, no more. So that power is already here. Everybody who knows that right now, the majority of my income comes through PayPal. I can't say anything bad about PayPal by contract. That's the day that's, you know, now I can, I can say whatever I want, but if they hear it, they have the right to terminate. And that Mm. would suck. That would just suck. But I'm not worried because I know the next day, everyone who cares will just say, oh, no problem. We'll do it all on Bitcoin. Because the value of what we're delivering is worth it to them and they will do it. And it'll be one small extra step. But the power, freedom of speech is at the basis. And that's what this podcasting 2.0 is about. Freedom of speech, uninterruptible freedom of speech. Amen, brother. And I got to shout out uh, some of the dev team at CT because they've been working on the per episode splits that have now been integrated into certain apps, which again is super cool because as you're saying, you can direct some of that to the dev team, some of that to a charitable organization, the host, the guest. It's going to be the case for this podcast. I'm going to ask you if you want to, you know, if you want to direct it at you or charity or whatever, and the sound guy is going to get some. I mean, that's the way it should be, right? It's it's super cool. We actually uh, have, so- yes, I actually I will send you the uh, the lightning address. We have the um, oh god, what do we call this thing? It's the Lightning Podcast Charity Fund, and the idea is this started with um, uh, Oscar Mary, who does the Fountain app, and yep. so we set up a node and we send. Uh, I think we're sending five percent of the split uh, from Podcasting 2.0's podcast in there. Uh, that is being used to hand out to uh, uh, all the developers so that when someone gets a uh, a podcast 2.0 app, they will have a couple thousand sats in their wallet already to get started right away. So uh, we're doing a charitable fund for ourselves, basically. (laughs) But the idea is is, is a community idea, and I kind of like it. I mean, lots of people... You know, for me, the we're going to go so far with this. Uh, in December, we're going to see a couple of people releasing albums on Podcasting 2.0, and the bands have already set up their contracts, completely disintermediation from uh, performing rights organizations like ASCAP, BMI, all of this stuff. They don't sign. They own their publishing. They own every their masters. They can do whatever they want, and they've split it up. You know, five guys. Each one get, gets 20% of the split. In perpetuity, every single time someone listens to that song, then everyone, as long as you got your wallet still, everyone will receive will receive their split. You know, these are revolutionary things that's going to break so much. It's going to break a shitload of stuff. It's going to be fun, isn't fun it, to watch. Isn't it? Isn't it cool that like you you could leave like your backup to your kid, and like you leave a gold bar, and like it. It maintains wealth, and maybe it accrues value if there's more demand. But like you could leave a a backup to your kid and like it's actually an an entity that's generating income in perpetuity like just there like and and you you may not even know until you restore you know everything and get it kicked up again and you realize like oh that's been generating income for a while you know it was actually quite quite a beautiful moment uh around uh, the lockdown again all this taking place my daughter is uh in rotterdam in the netherlands and uh yeah, it was very hard for her. She's she's uh, she was twenty nine, almost thirty. Very very hard, the hard times. You know, these kids were 
it was not easy. The Netherlands was had curfews and all kinds of draconian shit. Uh, and she was running low on funds because, you know, she couldn't do some of the side hustle she had going on. Ebso and said, okay, of course, I'm going to send you some money. And, uh, and uh, the experience with Chase Bank of wiring money to the European Union was so, I mean, the kid just needed some cash, right? Three days, $75 fees. But I said, all right, listen, screw this. And I found this great outfit called Bit My Money. And Bit My Money uh, gives you a wallet to receive. And, and once you're verified, you can send. But they connect directly to the European payment network. So if you sell your bet- Bitcoin, you can sell it straight into your bank account. So that was how I sent her what she needed uh, for, you know, when it took all of but 15 minutes for it to be sitting in her bank account where uh, her, you know, uh, her landlord could right away be paid because that was the issue. And of course, like a good dad, I sent her a little more BTC than than she needed. And two months or three months later, you know, as this thing, as we were going from four thousand up to six, whatever, she calls me, Dad, 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 Dad. What did you do? So what do I mean? Look, this this money grew. I say, yes, it did. It did. <laughs> and so you know, immediate orange pill. She's right. like, holy shit. And so when she's like. You know, I, I'm not going to touch that. I'm not. I'm not touching that. Like, I'm really see if I can keep. You know, I don't want any of that to go anywhere. This is a magical machine that I've got going here. So, you know, that was a beautiful moment, and you can see how, you know, the old the millennials, man, they get it. They're getting it. Yeah. Well, they, think they, about they benefit think, from it. Absolutely. I mean, think about El Salvador. They come online uh, September first week or second week of September. I think it was when Bitcoin. Uh, was you know 35 40k and then you know they get their 30 bucks from the government or whatever it was and then and now it's 60k like well it's a well, quick re- turnaround to just be like oh and remember that remember that uh, the manipulation immediately was to you know to knock it down on the day right. of release to like <laughs> right, ah, right. look at these fuckers and i love bukele's uh, <laughs> response oh thank you so much imf you know now i can just buy some more that's great you gave me a nice discount um, yeah, his, his troll and meme game is tight. I mean, they just picked up 420 Bitcoin like a couple of days ago, right? Like he, yeah. he's, a, he's a master of social media. <laughs> what, what, what I'm concerned about, though, is, you know, I do this other podcast called Mo Facts with Adam Curry, and uh, where uh, my friend Mo and I, we talk about, we talk real open and honest about race. He's black, I'm white. So, you know, we're, we have, we're both American men and we have families. And so we have a lot in common, but we have very different experiences in life. And it's fun to, um, compare those and fun to learn from each other. And uh, honestly, I'm learning more from him. But the biggest challenge I have, although he, you know we're stacking sats on the show, is I'm like, man, I, you know, Black America wants a shot, you know. And for fucking ten years, people have been saying, and there's lots of evangelists like, just you got to buy some and hold it. You know, the problem is that the and this is. A general in society, this, you know, I want to pop tomorrow. I want to get lucky tomorrow. I want to boom, yeah. boom. So I'll throw my rent money in, you know, this, this discipline has not been taught. We don't, most people who've grown up don't know what saving is. Yeah. No, you get a credit card. That's how it goes. You know, it's like, when can I get my credit card? But that's why Bitcoin teaches low time preference, right? And what, cause like, if you get this new money, if you're El Salvadorian, you get it at for easy numbers, 30K, and it goes to 60, immediately you're like, maybe I should save this. But maybe when I was, when I was growing up, John, when I was growing up, 
every person of influence in my life, an uncle, my parents, would would teach me. All right, son. Would teach me compounded interest. All right, right, son. Sit down here. I'm going to teach you compounded interest. What happens if you start with one penny? When you put a penny away every single day of your life, what are you going to wind up with? And the numbers were astonishing. When were the banks paid interest? You see. So Mm -hmm. saving made sense. And and it's much more in my DNA of like, oh, yeah, I understand that. But when saving didn't make sense anymore, which has been that way for a long time, not just because, I mean, really because the interest rate on savings was always out of whack with increase in earnings. Uh, you know, overall uh, consumer increase in in earnings and and um, uh, purchasing power is maybe a better way of describing it. That just kind of became a thing that just doesn't work. You can save all you want; you're never going to get ahead. You're never going to you're never going to get that house. You're never going to be able to do it. And here's a money that does. And hey, it took me more than ten years, right? It took me ten years to go. You know, I'm a dick. If I had had if I had held on to that shit when it was a dollar, you know, look at what I'd be now. By the way, I've been incredibly wealthy in my life. I've spent most of it. It was a lot of fun. I've done great, crazy things. Being a multimillionaire is extremely overrated. Cash flow is king. <laughs> but the idea now that I have, because you know, we've stacked quite a, quite a lot of our wealth in Bitcoin. And now both of us are like, okay, well, we really want a generator for the house because we don't want to go through what we went through before. You know, it still is like fifteen thousand dollars, a little bit, a little bit less, and you to install it, a whole house generator, and you and you really sit down and you say, okay, so we may need, you know, depending on how much money comes in from dollars, we may need to, we may need to tap in a little bit into the Bitcoin, and that's when the calculation goes, like, well, right. will, what will a thousand dollars be in five years, and what is the risk of you know of an apocalyptic snowstorm? So you and now we still decided to get it. Um, and we didn't have to tap the Bitcoin, but that, that conversation was had and like, wow, what, how amazing is it? We have something that we know, shh, don't tell anybody. We know that what we have on this wallet here is going to be worth more in a little bit or in five years or when we're really tired of working. That's, yeah, that's magic shit. It, it really, it really is. I mean, it totally changes the calculus, right? And, and on the one hand, to your point about interest and savings, like I think a lot of this is subconscious, even like in the the economic signals you get. But why do we have such a flashy, spend it, extravagant culture, as we like to call in the space, fiat culture today? It's because there's a there's a subconscious understanding that your money is losing its value rapidly. So you might as well get the most out of it by spending it today, right? Spend it on the car and the watches and the this and the that, right? Whereas Bitcoin totally flips that on its head. It, it extends out the time preference rather than shortening it and saying, and, and to that, Cal, I love that point you just make. And I, I love to talk about this because it is really magic, not just to say like, now you compare everything to the opportunity cost of spending the Satoshis, but the that how intense that opportunity cost is makes you uh, evaluate how much you want or per- put in perhaps more in more precise terms, how much you value everything else. And what I'm seeing and what I think is an amazing phenomenon amongst like really hardcore Bitcoiners is, of course, like the frivolous stuff that just gets done away with. I'm not I'm not spending money on like, you know, an extra deck chair just for the off chance that a guest comes over, for example, right? I want that money to be in Satoshi's. But it also has the effect of like changing your very, how you 
construct your own system of valuation internally. And what I find really interesting is a lot of that stuff that's not really, especially when compared to something of such extreme value, seen as being of much value, that gets pushed down the pyramid, let's say. But what remains up there or what gets pushed up or what bubbles up to the surface is things that can hold their ground in comparison to such an extreme uh, form of value. And what I think that, what I see that as being a lot of times in the space is like things of somewhat transcendent value, like family and health and beauty and joy and these things that you can't really put a price on. And those things end up being the things that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to spend some Bitcoin if it means my better health or the better health of my family or my kid's education, like those really, really important, valuable things. They are the things that can stand up to that judgment, but everything else is like, fuck that. I'm going to, I'm going to keep that in sats because it's, you know, as you say, it's going to be worth so much more in the future. And the way that that's changing people's very, how people construct their systems of valuation. And as a result, how they move forward in the world is a kind of magic to use your term, right? It's a very interesting phenomenon. And, and with magic comes a spell. So maybe a spell is a, it's a, it's a better kind of spell because uh, again, my generation's fault, I would say um, we raised our children and um, we, again, we were uh, somewhat selfish to a degree, although I think the generation, I'm really a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm with border with boomer tendencies, you know, I was from 64. So I'm right on the cusp there. I clearly identify with Gen X, see my career. Um, but um, what we've done is we kind of grew up in with it's it's all it's all the fiat problem because there was credit credit was I mean I remember so well there was a moment I quit MTV uh, no I was fired this is before I quit MTV they fired me but this it was, this time was real like it was I was always like cut your hair no fuck you I'm not going to cut my hair you're fired okay and that happened a couple times but one time was for real. And I was like, holy shit. And I had you know, a couple hundred bucks in the bank. I had a mortgage payment coming up. I had a five-year-old kid. Uh, I'm, like, I, you know, I'm like, holy crap, what am I going to do? This is a very important moment in my life. And, and two things uh, happened. A week later, that was resolved. They hired me back for twice as much because they couldn't do it without me. So I decided from that moment, I will never, ever, ever, ever worry about anything to that degree again. Certainly not about money. But the other thing was my daughter said, Daddy because of course she overheard this, why don't you just go to the money store? Because she had seen that on fucking television. You need cash? Go to the money store. And that is how this entire generation grew up, on credit, fiat-based credit, so that you, you didn't really have to worry about these things, because there's always some money laying around that you can get your hands on. Uh, and, uh, and your credit card's max out? Don't worry. Transfer your balance over to the new credit card. We'll take care of you. We'll let you do a little bit more. And then the true evil comes out, which makes people lazy and complacent, which is forms of universal basic income, which is stimulus. I'm, I'm all for safety nets. I have no problem whatsoever, but we're too careless. We're too reckless with it. And we just make it sound like the only choice in America is to have one or both parents working and have government paid child care. That's what's on deck here. That's one of the main talking points is direct payments uh, to, uh, to families to ensure that both parents are working and the kids are being uh, taken care of by the state. Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing. 
and we're lazy son of a bitches for letting it happen. And why? Because we're under the spell. We're under the spell of the entertainment complex, which is breaking, by the way. All of this is falling apart. I'm very bullish. I'm extremely bullish on what's happening. Hollywood has lost their influence. They can't buy ratings anymore. Only 15 million Americans read an online newspaper. Dude, Rogan, me, Tim Pool, uh, uh, I can name a couple other. We have a bigger audience combined than all the online newspapers. We mm-hmm. just haven't really realized it yet. Yeah. Um, who's influencing? Hollywood's not influencing. Influencers influence. And what do they influence? Shit. Shit from China repackages, beauty products, whatever. Um, and they're all being canceled. You know, everyone's being canceled out. The advertisers are getting worried about this whole thing. They don't, really don't want to be a part of it. I've seen the big networks. You know, we all used to be on GeoCities, and we all used to be on America Online, and then we were all on MySpace. Yeah, it's Facebook and Twitter today, but now we're going into decentralization, and that is a natural pendulum swing, a natural occurrence. The people want it in their hearts, mm-hmm. um, and what is the sooner people realize that you do not need to have the biggest audience to live, the better. You just need people who are dedicated and interested in what you're doing. You don't need to be number one. There's not going to be a king of all media anymore. It's all it's all pulled apart, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's fine. You know, let's just have our little knitting Mastodon server, and we talk about knitting, and something, you know, maybe the, the crocheting group can federate with us, you know. <laughs> then if all of a sudden some dicks come in, we can block them. We can block them. You know, we can block them. We could, as right. a community, we'll say, yeah, keep that server away from us. You know, these are the, this is the power. We don't need this huge government structure, which has been built up around us off of our backs. Yeah. Well, like, like you said earlier, man, I think the, the industrial media government academic uh, (laughs) complex that has become so obviously stale and stultified and narrow that there's just a huge hunger for having open conversations about interesting topics. Like we touched on a bunch of shit here today where a lot of people might disagree. Me and you and I may even have disagreements on these things, but like, it's just refreshing to say, oh, hey, look, a topic that we're not allowed to talk about somewhere else. Two people are just using their own logic and reason and what they know about the the topic in question to just poke at it. Be like, you know, oh, you know, this is what happened there. What do you think about that? Well, what do you think about this? And like, you're coming to your... You're carving out a more refined truth than what the mainstream outlets permit, right? They're shoving something down your throat. We're throwing, you know, we're having a conversation. And if people care to listen, then maybe it helps them refine their perspective to some degree or open up, a, you know, a rabbit hole that they want to pursue on their own of, of their own interest or whatever. And like, as you say, like what CNN does, 400,000 uh, viewers in prime time or whatever the number is. And Rogan does like 10 million an episode or something insane. Mm-hmm. Like easily that, that is exactly the point. No one knew who Sanjay, for it. No one knew who Sanjay Gupta was until he went on Rogan. Now everybody <laughs> knows the guy. <laughs> they never knew who that guy was before he went on Rogan. That's how it yeah. goes. Yeah. Same with and me. Course, and I, and I, and I, I love Joe forever for recredentialing me. That was a huge, huge event in my life. All of a yeah. sudden there's Joe Rogan saying, yeah, Adam Curry's the guy. He's the OG man. And then I get to talk for an hour and talk all kinds of shit. And, and that, that was, it was one of the most fantastic turns in my professional career ever and personal. 
It was yeah. just fantastic. People stopped me on the street. Like, hey, bro, I'm awesome. on Rogan. Now I'm listening to your show. Now this is it's like, wow. And like, I've been on CNN, MSNBC. I've been on all the, that, you don't get that kind of juice. You mm -hmm. I can be in the New York Times. You don't get that kind of juice from that. Like Rogan, no way. That's why they're dangerous. And it's so, it's so hilarious that all you guys are doing is having a chat. It's not like you're pushing an agenda. It's not like you're both like extremely sophisticated experts in any domain. It's like two dudes that, you know, tried their best to live a, you know, a good, be a good person, live a good life and express their curiosity in whatever way they felt like doing so and had some interesting experience off the back of that. Having a chat. And what do you know? 15 million people want to tune in and, and, and enjoy that. You know, it's, it just, it, to me, it just speaks to how narrow and, and stale and uninteresting the dominant, or I shouldn't say dominant, the mainstream uh, forms of media have become. And I, of course we love it, that, that, that this is the blowback. This is the, the response well, what, to that. What, what's so phenomenal, now coming from television specifically, I mean, radio is my love, but television is so dishonest. Everything is fake. Everything is false. I've participated in it. It's just an illusion. It is a complete, nothing is real. Hey, we're looking at some dipshit sitting in a soundstage yelling at each other with hot lights. I mean, really, if you step back from it and you look beyond what you're seeing on the screen, it's really not all that impressive. Mm -hmm. um, what the, remember when all this started, this was not, you didn't have pod, podcasters. You had something called UGC. So you don't remember this. Yeah, we're building our strategy on UGC. It was user-generated content. This is where right. Section 230 comes from. Section 230 was invented, and I think properly, although we can refine it now, uh, to enable any platform to have user-generated content, meaning, I know, it's just a bunch of fuckwads saying something, but hey, at least we're going to make money off of them by tracking them. Who cares? <laughs> that really, there was no, no care in the world. But right. what happened, what happened is through algorithms, et cetera, and other sm you know, smart little mechanisms like view counts and likes and subscription numbers, we, we got people assembling audiences. And with audiences, the advertisers went, well, the, if that's the audience over there, then that's where I want to advertise. And then everything started coming down because advertisers love advertising where there's a lot of people, but not if someone says the F word. Oh, no, we, mm. no, that's not part of our brand. So we can't be a part of that. Now the platform has two choices. They can say, well, we'll make sure your ad never shows up around that, but they can't. You, you can't contextualize every piece of video and know what's going to be said or not. Or we can just take that fucker off. <laughs> See the choice? And then mm -hmm. that gets leveraged by uh, political groups who will go on the same networks using the same me mechanism saying, Mr. Coca-Cola, I can't believe your ad's running on that jerk-off's uh, podcast because, you know, that YouTube video, because he's a racist. You know, advertisers don't sit and go, well, let's investigate. Is he really a racist? Let's see if we should be advertising. <laughs> they pull the lever in one second. Ripcord. Eject, yeah. eject, eject. Because they're deathly afraid. And now, now we have the final frontier. Thank you, BlackRock and Vanguard for creating environmental social governance. Yes, you finally come up with the final attack to make any corporation uninvestable by institutions such as insurance companies and you know, pension funds. 
unless you display your valor for the message, which is green and woke and whatever else we want it to be. And it's uh, destructive. But very soon, I guarantee you, I've seen it. This is the benefit of being immersed in, in the news flow for 20 years. You're going to see people stop wearing these shoes. They will wear something else, but they won't wear Nike, especially Americans. We are so good at jumping on a fad or jumping off of one. That was a full stop, period. <laughs> God, I was wondering if there's anything more no, there. No, there was because, nothing else. No, that was not. I'm no, just... no, great, great rant. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't, don't let that response. Uh, that was a great rant. But, like, you know, I agree. And, and so much of this stuff comes back to the money. And the, the way those levers get pulled is, is largely because, you know, there's other reasons, too, that these, these platforms have become so powerful and there's no, alter there's no alternatives with the same network effect yet. But of course, like the, 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 the unholy marriage between big corporations, whether it's big media, big tech, big ag, big business, whatever, and government is because of that unholy alliance between government and money. And if we can break that, then the government becomes far more able to push their agenda down through those institutions and corporations and ultimately to the people. And so that, you know, again, why Bitcoin is so exciting, because I think it really will foster an environment where truth is discovered more efficiently and more unobstructedly. And the, like the truth of the market, the truth of the service that's desired, the truth of the type of the me type of media people want, like people's preferences will be more able to be signaled to the market without distortion. And that means what the market generates back in response to those signals will obviously be more in accord with that, what that demand genuinely is, not injecting someone's ideology in there through their corruption of that, that signaling mechanism, which is the money, right? So I think we'll get a society and a culture and markets and, and economies and institutions and government structures that are far more in line with what individuals genuinely desire, not what they've been coaxed and misinformed and misled and zombified into accepting um, as a result of a, a different signal and a different structure. For, for 10 years, the podcast industry was frozen in irons, could not move left or right. They could not bake in one feature because everybody had their own little fiefdom was afraid, well, if I do this and then, it, you know, no one else will support that feature because it's for this company. And if Apple doesn't do it, then no one will do it. And if Spotify, blah, 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 heard that a thousand times, 10 years long. And all of a sudden we change one thing. It wasn't me. It wasn't Dave. It wasn't uh, the namespace. We gave everybody an incentive and a common Piece, and that is our lightning uh, payment system. So everybody benefits if it works, no matter what we're doing. If it's cross cross app comments or if it's boostograms, it doesn't matter. Everyone is incentivized because they will get a piece of whatever's flowing around. And it is mind boggling to me. I think I know most of the people, most everyone who's involved in the in the whole project certainly all the developers and sometimes we have a call and it'd be 15 16 people of developers and i look at them and i've had big companies I had 700 employees at one time i look at this group and i say jesus this is like a two million dollar a month payroll and 
you, if you could even recruit them, they would be less honest and less productive. Mm-hmm. And here, they're all incentivized. Uh, I don't know much about all of their lives, but I do know when it comes to what we're doing, it's a beautiful collaboration. And and I, I truly believe it's because the difference is we have Bitcoin in there and uh, everyone has a shot at, uh, at, at, at monetizing their work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that. There's the self-interest of like, if you make the system better, it's more valuable. People buy into it. Your yes. savings accrue value. Wins. Yeah. But there's obviously, of course, at the same time, a big ideological component around Bitcoin, which is why the protocol itself, you know, has a lot of volunteer development work done on it. Lots of companies in the space have have been open source projects that people have just gravitated towards. You know, Jack Mallers is often talks about the fact like how can you as whatever closed system be it media money what have you how can you compete with an open decentralized global system where anyone can just opt in they can you know contribute to a github they can start a business on this protocol there's and that's what i mean by no friction like anyone can opt in and they can start contributing they can start benefiting you you, you can and in any small way you don't have to be a coder you could write show notes for someone who's doing something cool in podcasting 2.0 like it's just the yeah, door have, there's infinite doorways and th- how do you compete with that when people are so motivated oh totally and like we have uh, dreb scott does chapters the chapters is a big feature of podcasting 2.0 with images and links um and some other um uh, young guy uh, popped up actually i don't know how i don't even know how old he is uh, neil jones they, we call him the clip custodian he sends me about 10 10 to 12 clips per ep to use per episode of, you know, news clips of shit that I can't even stand to watch CBS, NBC, ABC. He gets, and he's, I, he sent it once or twice. I'm like, holy shit, God, dude, you're so good. It's the right length. It's the right bit. It's you even have it labeled correctly. Thank you so much. I said, please, let me get your wallet. Let me set you up. And he says he gets so much joy out of seeing the Satoshis come into his wallet says, I don't even care how much it is. It's not the point. I know that someone is enjoying something that I contributed to, and I'm getting that 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 signal in real time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's it, it really that's magic. <laughs> that's magic yeah, money. It really it is. is closest it's thing magic. to it. Closest thing to yeah. it. Um, Adam, I know I've been I've chewed up a good two hours of your time here, so I'm going to let you go. But the the last thing, and we've kind of been dancing around this, but what are you? What's next for what you guys have been working on in this space, and or what gets you the most excited about kind of next uh, next steps, whether that be adoption technology that's happening with Lightning or podcasting 2.0 that's you know really really gets your uh, the goosebumps going on the back of your neck. Um, I'd say right now, the mid, the near term, midterm goals are a live component for podcasting 2.0, which means your podcast app will notify you that a, that a podcast is going live. You will be able to lie to listen live and very much, uh, and watching live is next, obviously, and very much uh, be able to replicate the concept of a super chat with a boostergram. So while we're talking live, you can see on a web page as you're listening and as we're talking, you can see the the messages people send. We'll have two 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 components to that. One is just comments, which by itself, cross app comments has never been done before 
we're using activity pub is going to work it's going to be mind-boggling but then you still want that component because that's always very noisy you want that component where people can bust through the noise uh, on youtube it's a super chat where you pay five bucks or ten bucks and then you know you you show up in a different with a color and it's obvious you're there uh we're going to do that my my real goal is to set up everything i can to get mo uh, building his empire i believe he has the capability to build something very big he's he's very very in tune with a huge community uh and that community lives in the following manner youtube live and then the recorded it's all youtube live so i want to be able to do I want people to be able to do video live. I want the Satoshis to stream while they're doing it. I want Boostergrams. You familiar with Versus? You ever see that? It's like the hip hop battle between two DJs. Is it, it happens once a year? It's so. real underground, but there's about two million people that watch it, and it lasts just one evening. It's usually in Atlanta. So I'd like to do Versus on Lightning, and the voting would be with Satoshis. <laughs> and then the winner of the battle gets part of the purse. The loser gets a piece. You know, there's all that, that, that really the, the decentralized digital rights system, that's, that's the magic. I mean, that's going to be so cool in how people use that. Um, it can be used for anything uh, as long as you can structure the, um, uh, structure the experience around it. So music is going to happen in December. And, you know, we'll probably see apps popping up that that use the podcast index as the back end but look like a music app you know we're, uh, and why not it's just it's the same shit you just, you just presented differently in the app um there's someone doing audiobooks already same thing i mean all of this stuff can work with this very same infrastructure with uh pot with the podcasting 2.0 that means it's a namespace for the value block in your RSS feed, which by the way, you don't need the index for, which is the beauty of it. We just make it easy. You can yeah. put, you can make your own RSS feed with the text editor and put it on your cable modem at home. You know, you can do whatever you want. Um, and then lightning and, you know, and we're also putting together an umbral app uh, so that we can make a lot of things easier for podcasters from a, a node at home. Uh, we still think that's a big future. Uh, mm -hmm. We're, we're looking, we're working with LN pay, um, uh, to create simple wallets for, um, these will be custodial. So there's lots of issues around that, that we, that we have to look at, which is part of why, you know, we collect funds is to get legal advice on how to handle something. Um, you know, guest wallets, all this kind of stuff. So, um, just really, uh, moving the whole platform forward. And then eventually I'll, I'll write the book and, and have the Broadway musical. <laughs> about my life amazing can't wait it'll for be that. thomas it'll be hamilton only in it thomas jefferson <laughs> is a bitcoin maxi that's how it goes as it should be <laughs> uh do you last very last question i promise but do you think that um content creators will have to offer their content exclusively on let's say lightning enabled platforms to really incentivize people to use it right because if, if it's available for free on some platforms or it's available as for streaming sats in others, like, you know, the, the, the compulsion is less, right? Do you think people will move to exclusivity on these types of distributions? The smart ones won't, um, the dumb ones will. And I'll tell you why, because you just have to look at the numbers. It's that simple. First of all, you need an outstanding product. If you have a product that people aren't interested in, I don't care what you're doing. It's not going to work. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we've always given away our content for free, and we've just asked for people who want the supporter to support it. Your typical number will be 1%. We do about 45 to 5% of the overall audience that actually supports us. Now, that is on a rotating basis. Uh, people come in, go out, they will support, you know, one year, maybe not next year. But in general, uh, we see about four and a half percent supporting us. And what those four and a half percent, you know what they did when they, when they started supporting us? Cause we, we read their little messages and stuff. They would say, Hey, you know, this buddy of mine at work, he actually turned me onto the show. I haven't heard him donate once. You should call him out as a douchebag. <laughs> and they even sent a jingle to do just that which is and the idea is then that that person hears that comes in donates and said i need a dedouching you've been dedouched we didn't make any of that shit up the the producers the audience made that up so but but really if i look at the you know we we can do the math could we run ads we got like 1.5 1.4, 1.5 million people who are listening on per show, which is quite a lot. I, really? I didn't even, yeah, I didn't even know that. You I, get a, I thought, a million five downloads per show? Yeah. Holy well, we shit. don't count downloads. We, we count it in a more effective way. But yeah, um, 1.4, the last time we How checked. How do you count we never, it? Oh, Dave Jones. By, there was a beautiful moment, because we've never really tracked it, because I don't believe you can actually find out what it is. Not very accurately. There was a beautiful moment just before Apple made their switch and we were running um, one piece of content through Cloudflare, which is an important part of the player process. I'll have to ask Dave to explain it precisely. But so we got one, like one moment where we got one statistic for a month that showed exactly how much was, was being pulled through Cloudflare. And I was astonished, quite frankly, about how I thought it was maybe four or 500,000, but it was significantly higher. And then Apple changed their whole indexing system and that capability, which we kind of stumbled on, went away, unfortunately. But I mean, it, it, we could still measure it. It would probably be the same. But okay, so that would be, uh, let's just say a million, just to make it easy. That's a thousand CPMs. So that means if you have a, a million list, people listening, you have 1,000 advertising use, units at, uh, at $23. So if I could actually prove that uh, uh, a million people listened to one episode, I could probably make $23,000. That would be a very good payday. Uh, uh, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had paydays like that on people just supporting us, typically on anniversaries, holidays, something special. Happens regularly. Um, and, and by the way, we give all the amounts out. You can just listen to the show and count it up and you know exactly how much we made. So we're not, we're not you know, cagey about it. But what comes with that um, I'd much rather be reading notes from the people that I'm actually speaking to. And it's not just, Hey, I want to say hi to my mom. It's like, Hey, I heard you talking about this. I actually have to, be, I happen to be an expert in, uh, in, uh, in ventilation, you know, all these different things they can then talk about. They'll pay to get that note read for the feedback. So the loop is really complete in, in, in very interesting ways. But then what I would not be able to do would be astronomical. So it's just not worth it. Mm. It's not worth it. And I love. Now they've been doing it for a long time. I love the idea of the only people who can um, punish me for doing a shit job are the people I'm doing the job for. It's that simple. If I'm not in my game, if I'm not, look, I've had plenty of mainstream television and radio shows where I phoned it in, brother, because I was getting the check anyway. Of course, that happens. 
But this is, you can't phone it in. If people say, oh, that was great, Curry, but I'm not going to support you anymore. And that, and it can end just as quickly as it started, I guess. I mean, so mm-hmm. far we've, we've been good. So giving away for free, I have no problem. I, I, I just think the, the idea, it, we're seeing with these streaming systems and whether it's radio as in Sirius XM, I'll just consider that kind of streaming, uh, Spotify, Pandora, the video, we've got Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Disney, Apple, Paramount, Peacock, Horsecock. We've got, got so many different streaming apps and every single one, you know, people are looking at their bill at the end of the month and going, what's really, what is valuable to me? So mm-hmm. instead of I have to subscribe to Spotify, but I'm only doing it for Rogan and it's maybe not that interesting to me after a while, it's like, here's everything. Here's everything. If you like something, send that person something. And by the way, you know, the people hosting it get a piece of it. The, the, the people who do the transcripts get a piece of it. You know, mom oh. who, uh, who, uh, who lent, lent her, her kids a thousand bucks to build the studio gets paid back through it. You know, your favorite charity automatically gets, gets a piece. I mean, these things are, that's, that's the network effect that I'm waiting to see take off. And as you said, the, the per episode, per episode splits are where a lot of that is going to take, take hold. Breeze just implemented it. So everyone's kind of getting on board and getting their heads wrapped around it. And it'll take a, take a little bit more, John. I mean, it takes time for people to get their head out of where they are and, and, sure. you know, but I'm seeing it. Establish I'm, it, a new habit. But I think, you know, podcasting, it took a while, man. It took years. We're going at double, triple speed, but it still took a while. It takes time for people to adopt. And we have no marketing budget. This is it. Mm-hmm. This is the, hello, this is the podcasting 2.0 marketing team here. And, you know, <laughs> but you're part of it. And, uh, you know, uh, Gigi's part of it. And Max is part of it. And everyone's a part of it. That's, that's kind of, you know, Bitcoin has no marketing department it's uh that was memed you know it's so these dang things, memes yeah. yeah yeah so this is this is what makes it such an incredibly exciting thing and uh i i think i said to you the other day i feel so privileged to be working with all these people mm-hmm. i mean Me i had i i could have been seriously i really could have been the washed up vj they always say i am just you know being pathetic but I, but here i am i i get to I get to continue doing what I love doing. People reward me for it uh, because they feel they get something out of it. Uh, what a great way to live. It really 100%. is. Yeah. And man, I, I just got to say thank you and how grateful I and I'm sure many others are that you took your life experiences and these philosophies that you've just articulated and, be, you know, the jam those two things together. And once you got introduced to something like Bitcoin and lightning had that, you know, impulse to do more with it. And I think it's going to end up being a tremendous, uh, service to effectively humanity and all of us who rely on these, these tools to establish greater freedom and greater joy and greater expression in our lives. So, you know, thank you for the work you've done. And, uh, if people want to hear more about your your many strong opinions on on your variety of shows where should they uh hit you up or, or search for you um yeah so you can find me uh on uh podcastindex.social <clears throat> i'm adam at podcastindex.social <clears throat> excuse me i'm also on twitter but that's kind of an inbox really the no agenda show 
You can type in no agenda into any search engine. It'll, it'll take you there. Um, thank you for what you said, because the way you said that kind of made me feel good that, and to bring it all around, um, although my family has been military and intelligence, et cetera, uh, I consider them all patriots and I consider them always to have had the country's best, uh, the, the, the country's best interest at heart. Uh, even though the system may have misguided the entire apparatus, I know they all, all come from a truly patriotic place. And so I feel the same. This is, this is, uh, this is something that I should be doing. Uh, I have to do this because this is, I'm not, you know, there's not much else I can do to do my patriotic duty, but this is it. And hey, if it helps other countries in the world, <laughs> that's a bonus. We're open to everybody. You know, it's no longer just America. It's a, it's a Bitcoin nation and, uh, and we're all exactly. in it and we're all in it, brother. And, uh, and uh, it's so reminiscent of early days of the web, early days of podcasting. Uh, it is, it is, and I'm happy for you. I'm happy for, uh, young people who are, uh, witnessing this. Cause I was a little worried. We'd never see that again. It would just be big black boxes in Silicon Valley that you go into and this stuff comes out of. So uh, th I appreciate you saying that. Thank you for what you're doing. I, I haven't, I started listening to your back catalog. I know a number of the names and I'm skipping over the ones I know and going, getting to the ones I don't know first, but it's very nice. It's a nice little chat you do with people. I appreciate it. I appreciate that, man, especially coming from you. And yeah, I think we're all on a mission here and it's seeming to emerge as uh, the most worthwhile mission that we can, we can strive for, you know, and that's why it's pulling so many people in. And, and I certainly share your uh, sentiment about how grateful that this is emerging, right? Because a lot of us were looking out on the horizon prior to really understanding all this and thinking like, damn, you know. Things are, <laughs> things are a little bit dark up there and we're yeah. not sure we're going to make it. And now we have this bright orange beam of hope uh, shining down that, uh, you know, it's just inviting you to engage, adopt and make better. And I think many of us and many people are listening are starting to get that and trying to find ways to do so. So, Adam, I really appreciate the time and all the work and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll speak again sometime in the future. Anytime, John, anytime. I, I really enjoyed it. All right, brother. Take care. It's always such a treat to speak with someone who's maintained the conviction of their principles and beliefs through life's ups and downs, and who continues to push forward on developing solutions to the problems that are most meaningful to them. I think all of us who work in media owe Adam a debt of gratitude for his pioneering work over many years. If you'd like to hear more from Adam, follow him on Twitter at Adam Curry, all one word. Check out his shows, No Agenda, Podcasting 2.0, and Mo Facts, and visit podcastindex.org. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.